uh, Your Grace, members of the Royal Irish Academy, colleagues, ladies and gentlemen. I'd like to begin by welcoming you all to the Royal Irish Academy, our Ireland's leading body of experts in the sciences and humanities, for today's conference, Church of Ireland, Disestablishment and Beyond. This important conference has been organized to commemorate the 150th anniversary of the disestablishment of the Church of Ireland. The conference started with uh, an invitation to me from uh, Most Reverend Dr. Michael Jackson, Archbishop of Dublin and Bishop of Glendalough, to come and visit him. Here was I being summoned uh, to the bishop's residence for a fireside chat, and I thought, what's this about? Um, when we spoke, he well, I had to do some background reading to prepare for this meeting, of course, um, and learned an awful lot of very interesting, very useful things. Um, when we got to the meeting, he uh, told me of the, the plans and what uh, they would like to do with the academy. Now, as president of the academy, um, people may think I have some power, but unfortunately, I rely on volunteers to do everything. So I took the message back that this is something I personally would like to champion and we'd like to see this happen. But did we have any volunteers who'd like to get involved? And we had a huge number of people who wanted to participate across a range of disciplines. And by working closely with the team, uh, we have come up with a number of events, but in particular, we have this uh, conference today. So that steering committee first met in September 2018 and has worked very hard since then to bring this uh, program together. Now, uh, Church of Ireland, like the Royal Irish Academy, is an all-Ireland all Ireland, uh, institution and the conference reflects that. It addresses multi and interdisciplinary topics and, as I said, from the Academy side, has involved a number of committees representing different aspects of humanities and social sciences. So we have representatives from the Historical Studies Committee, Social Sciences, Ethical, Political, Legal and Philosophical Studies. I have a particular in interest from that time, having learned about education and being an engineer, the origins of technical education in this country. Uh, so I'm looking forward to hearing more about that today. The conference deals with the moment in which the Church of Ireland lost its status as an established church on the 1st of January 1871. There will be discussion about the process by which the church had arrived at that position and the challenges that it uh, raised. And in fact, the responses to those challenges and the very constructive and creative responses. We address, the conference addresses themes such as adjusting to disestablishment politics, politics, church life, church organizations and worship, cross-border factors, and church-state relations. The contributions that the Church of Ireland has made and continues to make to Irish society in all areas of education and health will also be discussed. With an over 300% increase in the number of those declaring themselves as atheists in Ireland over the past decade, the theme of secularization will also arise in the third panel as the expert contributors look at the challenges since 1969 and also, importantly, look to the future. We in the Academy are honoured to be part of the Church of Ireland's National Programme of Commemorative Events under the title of Disestablishment 150, Free to Shape Our Future. This timely conference recognises an important moment in Irish society and allows consideration of many current issues from a distinct angle, as well as looking to the future. 
So with that, I now call on Most Reverend Dr. Michael Jackson to address you. President, members of the Academy, ladies and gentlemen, I think we in the Church of Ireland can hardly believe that we are here today. We know that we are, but we are absolutely delighted to have this enriching opportunity to have an afternoon where we are able to gather, garner, draw together perspectives on us as well as our offering some perspectives on ourselves in the interchange that will take place this afternoon. So I'd like to thank the President and everybody in the Academy who has made this afternoon possible. Disestablishment within the life of the Church of Ireland continues as a work in progress. We are continuing to feel our way in contexts which change around us all the time. And while the event itself was seismic in its day, um, those who carry forward uh, that identity have to make a contribution as the contexts change annually and on a very regular basis. And as the President has rightly pointed out, the number of interesting trajectories which have come to bear on us as a small community within the totality of Irish society are something that we're delighted to share and have opened to generous and public criticism. This afternoon's program breaks itself into three C's, those of concept, those of consequences and challenges. And from what I understand, we'll be given a very sound basis in the historical origin and the permutation which led to disestablishment itself, considering the concept of establishment first. And then also how the Church of Ireland charted its course in an event which, in a very real sense, was not primarily ecclesiastical, but was political and social. And it's always important for us who have the temptation to look inside, as members of a church, to look outside and to receive all of that enrichment of people who have a quite different perspective from us. The various lenses that will come to bear on the material this afternoon are very important to us. We did, as uh, the President said, uh, begin to address Disestablishment 150 last year. And we began intentionally with a conference of young people and we wanted to hear their voice and their perspective on what the world within which they live is like and the church to which they belong is like and to get that internal conversation going around how the two work together where there are so many influences on how people think and act and relate. Then in November of this year we had the opportunity to have the Archbishop of Canterbury uh, to preach in St. Patrick's Cathedral. Um, considering the origins of disestablishment, that may seem to have been a joke in bad taste, but it was no such thing. We wanted to hear from him what he thought um, of the Church of Ireland. And he laid down a challenge to us that his understanding of the Church of Ireland was a church without borders. And that's a concept, I think, with which we can work and which we need to work. And so after that, we had a panel discussion. And the very interesting thing about that was that he got a fascinating perspective on Ireland from that 
and was able to make his own contribution to that. This event is really very strategic, coming in the middle of our year. And I simply do not want to say any more at this stage, except to keep your eyes open for the shifting lenses that come to bear on something which we continue to call the Church of Ireland, and from within which we want to make our contribution to the totality of Irish society. President, thank you very much indeed. Members of the Academy, thank you. And all of you who have come today, I'm really delighted to see so many friends come to enjoy this afternoon. Thank you. Good afternoon. Um, my name is Kelly, James Kelly, and I am chairing the first uh, panel uh, this, this afternoon. Uh, those of you who have looked at closely at your program will have identified that it's, it, it aspires to look at the nature of the Church of Ireland establishment when it was at its peak, as it were, in the 18th, uh, in the early 19th centuries, before going on to exploring what disestablishment uh, precisely meant. And to that end, we have uh, two uh, speakers. Uh, <clears throat> these are both former distinguished members of the history department in uh, the Maynooth University. Uh, I dare say they're at least known to you by, by somewhat by repute, but I will just give them a short biographical uh, notice. Our first speaker will be speaking on the nature of the church as an established part of the Irish constitution. Is uh, will be Jackie Hill, who is a member of the Royal Irish Academy and was until her retirement Associate Professor of History at Maynooth University. Now, Professor Hill has published extensively on 18th and 19th century Ireland. Many of you, I dare say, are aware and familiar with her book, Dublin Civic Politics, from from the 1660s to the 1840s, from Patriots to Unionists, which remains the definitive work in this, in this realm. Uh, <clears throat> to that end, her recognition of that fact, she was made a fellow of the Royal Historical Society. I should point out, in terms of the Royal Irish Academy and its sponsorship of the New History of Ireland, that she was also uh, the editor of Volume 7 of that uh, inestimable series, which is published by Oxford University Press in 2003. And after Dr. Hill, Professor Vincent Comerford uh, will take the stage. Professor Comerford <coughs> studied at Maynooth and at Trinity College in Dublin and was for two decades Professor of Modern History and Head of Department at, at Maynooth. He's the author of many books. I won't uh, <coughs> draw your attention to, to them all, uh, but I just may, maybe I mention one, which I think personally is a, a gem of a history of Ireland. This is, in the Entering the Nation series, he's published his book on Ireland, which was published in 2003. And I would uh, obviously recommend that to you. Perhaps some of you are more familiar with his work on the Fenians, 
uh, but I would also draw attention to the fact that he wrote the defining <clears throat> or provided some of the defining chapters of uh, the new history of Ireland, uh, which looked, volume five, that is, which looked at Ireland in the first half of the, uh, the 19th century. So both our speakers are particularly uh, well equipped uh, to set the stage for what we wish to do uh, this afternoon. To, to that end, can I just uh, advise you just a little, there's a slight revision in the manner of the presentation in terms of the, 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 the program. Uh, both our speakers will take uh, speak for about 20 minutes or thereabouts, and that will be followed by some conversation between the panel before we open it up to the floor. So there'll be plenty of opportunity, I would hope, uh, for all of you uh, who wish to make a contribution either now or perhaps in some, some of the issues that we raised uh, later on in the, in the, after, the afternoon. So now, without further ado, by my calculation, almost a minute before we're scheduled to start, uh, I'm, it's my pleasure to invite uh, Professor Hill uh, to address uh, the, the audience. Jackie. Well, <clears throat> thank you very much indeed, Jimmy, for those kind words. And um, I'd like also to thank the organizers for the invitation to speak. Um, no, I'm just trying to sort my notes out here. Um, okay, well, I've been asked to say something then on the subject of establishment. And what I propose to do is to have a fairly speedy look um, at the origins, nature, creed and evolution of the Church of Ireland in the period down to the early 19th century. But first, I want to, um, I'm going to cast my mind back to a related event that has stuck in my mind for the last 40 years or thereabouts, and the relevance of which will quickly become apparent. I had not at that time been very long in the history department in Maynooth when the Departmental History Society decided to invite the former Archbishop of Dublin and former Primate of Ireland, Dr. George Sims, to address the society on disestablishment. Um, the invitation was accepted and Dr. Sims duly came and gave his talk. The event was very well attended. The details of what he said, I'm afraid, have completely escaped me. However, one thing stands out. Back in those days, um, quite a number of Nigerian nuns used to come to Maynooth. And many of them would study history as one of their subjects. Um, and they all sat in the front rows, serried ranks in their habits. Um, and after, the, after Dr. Sims had given his talk, there was opportunity for questions from the audience. And one of these nuns put up her hand and she said, I'd like to ask 
the Archbishop. What was the origin of the Church of Ireland? And I thought, what's he going to say? Is he going to mention Henry VIII? Not at all. You can all guess what he said. Saint Patrick. (laughs) Anyway, with apologies to the Archbishop, the late Archbishop, um, I'm going to start with Henry VIII. (laughs) And thanks to the wonderful dramatized fictional work of Hilary Mantel, um, I'm sure I don't have to fill you in about Henry VIII's divorce and how that led to the break with Rome. But what was the nature of the church in Ireland at the time of the break with Rome? Well, there were in effect two churches. In Gaelic Ireland, um, the area outside English control, the Gaelic magnates, um, they enjoyed a great deal of control over uh, the church, um, which was quite unorthodox in many respects. For instance, there were hereditary clerical families Uh, not going down well with Rome. Nevertheless, Rome recognized that church. It also recognized the church in the Pale, the area more under English control. And the church there was much more like that in England. But I should just point out that there were a great many, in the Pale, there were a great many lay patrons who... Um, enjoyed considerable power over the church. They, uh, for instance, um, had the power to appoint to livings, and there was a good deal of impropriation of tithes. In other words, um, instead of going to, you know, provide livings for the clergy, um, these lay patrons were gobbling them up. And as I say, the Pope recognized both these churches. So what were the prospects for the, um, the, the, uh, for for what the um, Irish Parliament's Act of Supremacy of 1536 referred to for, I think, the first time as the Church of Ireland? This act designated Henry VIII um, supreme head on earth of the whole Church of Ireland. Well, the Irish Parliament passed that act. Um, Now, the Irish Parliament represented the pale, effectively. Um, It also passed the Act of Kingly Title of 1541, which um, set out that whoever is King of England is King of Ireland. Now, the Book of Common Prayer was introduced by an English act of 1549, um, but it was required to be used in Ireland. And these measures all went through, really with little sign of protest. And these relatively hopeful signs 
continued beyond the, I won't say anything about the reign of Mary and Edward, but um, continued on into the early years of Elizabeth's reign in the second half of the 16th century. So, for instance, at least in the Pale, the bishops of Meath, Kildare, Dublin, they were all prepared to take the oath of supremacy. Um, for its part, the government um, tried to make things easier by allowing the prayer book to be used in Latin as well as in English. Of course, the whole idea of the, um, the Reformation was to encourage the vernacular, but anyway, they allowed it to be used in, in Latin. Um, and the creed of the new church, the 39 articles, finalized in 1571, um, these contained no offensive references to the Pope, and taken altogether, they, were, they reflected quite a moderate uh, Protestantism, quite a conservative variety of Protestantism, which would have been in keeping with Elizabeth's own views. However, by the end of the 16th century and early 17th century, serious problems had arisen. The English government and its agents in Ireland, including the Protestant bishops, prioritized the military conquest of the whole of Ireland over any attempt to convert people. So resources went into conquest. They did not, for the most part, go into um, attempts to convert the people. Um, there was no university, of course, until the 1590s. There was no prayer book in Irish until later in the 17th century. Many of the lay patrons continued to appoint um, to livings and continued to control tithes. Meanwhile, the counter-reformation was spreading in Ireland, particularly in the towns. And the result was, as you might expect, there were very few conversions among the local population. Most Protestants, and there was a small Protestant community in Ireland by that time, um, most of them were settlers. They were incomers. The clergy remained largely uneducated, they couldn't preach, they didn't have the capacity, therefore, to convert people. Um, and there was a lot of what was called, I mean, people who tried to conform, they were, in effect, what, what, what are often called church papists. In other words, they outwardly conformed, that, that, was, that was it. So it was clear by that time that the Church of Ireland, whatever about the early hopes, was in effect a minority church, unlike those in England or Wales. And it was against this background that a distinctive creed 
for the Church of Ireland emerged. Not the Church of England, just the Church of Ireland in the early 17th century. The 39 articles, as some of you will know, contained a reference to predestination. But given its minority status, the Church of Ireland was much attracted by the idea of what's often known as double predestination. In other words, not only were some destined to be saved, the elect, but some were destined for damnation. And it was all too easy to categorize the Catholics as those who would face damnation. So these items and some other quasi-Calvinist doctrines, um, together with the 39 articles, formed part of the 104 articles of the Church of Ireland uh, in 1615. Also, in those articles, the Pope was now referred to as Antichrist. Now, one of the strong supporters of the 104 articles was the scholar and primate of the Church of Ireland, Dr. James Usher. Archbishop of Armagh from, from 1625 to 1656. And his research into the nature of the early Christian church in Ireland led, among others, to an important publication as far as we're concerned. And this was a discourse of the religion anciently professed by the Irish and Scottish of 1631. And here he argued that the original Christian church in Ireland, founded by St. Patrick, was a pure church, free from popish error. Those popish errors had been introduced at the time, or some subsequent, to the Anglo-Norman invasion of the 12th century. And as he surveyed the scene in his own day, Archbishop Usher uh, concluded that of all the churches, as he looked around him, the Church of Ireland was the true successor of Patrick's church. And this view as we can see from the case of Dr. Sims, became widely accepted in the Church of Ireland community. However, Ireland was about to be caught up in the revolutionary upheavals of the mid-17th century, which affected also England, Wales, and Scotland. The Civil War, for instance, in England. In Ireland, these included the 1641 Rising, Catholic Rising, and subsequently then the Cromwellian Reconquest of Ireland. 
During the Cromwellian period in Ireland in the 1650s, the Church of Ireland was effectively disestablished in favour of a looser, more Puritan, Calvinist, Republican system. But with the restoration of the monarchy in the 1660s, the church settlement in England um, restored the Church of England, and in Ireland it restored the Church of Ireland without the Calvinist overtones of the 140, 104 articles. And the restored church settlement then, it effectively confirmed the divisions between Catholic and Protestant, and now introduced even some formal division between the Church of Ireland and Protestant dissenters. Presbyterians were now firmly outside the church. Um, they were required, for instance, from the 1670s on to take the oath of non-resistance. That is, they wouldn't take up arms against the monarch. Um, and this was resented by Presbyterians as a form of passive obedience. Um, there were also restrictions on Presbyterians entering local corporation offices. The other thing to mention about the restoration settlement is that it confirmed most of Cromwell's um, confiscation of land from Catholics. This was now confirmed. So by the 1660s, the great majority of land in Ireland was now held by Protestants. Um, so although they only made up something like, I don't know, about 25% of the population, um, about 85% of Irish land was now in Protestant hands. However, the Church of Ireland was about to face another challenge, this time in the 1680s. James II was Catholic, and he insisted on removing uh, much of the discrimination against Catholics in his realms. In the very final phase of his reign, when he'd fled to Ireland in face of the Williamite invasion in England, um, his 1689 Irish Parliament even began to undo the land settlement. So it's not surprising that most members of the Church of Ireland swallowed their oaths of allegiance to James and switched their allegiance to William, justifying this by identifying William as an agent of providence. The Williamite settlement, notably the Bill of Rights of 1689, confirmed not only that the ruler must be subject to parliamentary consent, but barred Catholics in future from inheriting the throne. The Act of Settlement of 1701 further required the monarch to be Protestant 
and head of the established church. And this was the context for the penal laws against Catholics, which were in operation for most of the 18th century, and some rather lesser discrimination against Protestant dissenters. The final period I want to mention is the, is the half century that witnessed the abolition of the penal laws in Ireland from the 1770s to the 1820s. There was some Irish Protestant support for that relaxation. Um, by no means everyone, but some support. Um, but the uh, impetus for uh, the relaxation came from the English government. We should note, too, that in this period, following the 1798 rebellion, an Act of Union was passed between England and Ireland in 1800. Under the terms of the Act, the Irish Parliament vanished. Um, and in religious terms, the Church of England and Church of Ireland were to be united forever in doctrine, worship, and church government. The abolition of the penal laws placed the main churches in Ireland on a much more level footing. Both the Church of Ireland and the Catholic Church um, had begun a period of church building from the 1790s onwards. In the case of the Church of Ireland, using money from the Board of First Fruits set up by Queen Anne to support the infrastructure of the Church of Ireland. And this money was greatly enhanced by parliamentary grants in the early 19th century. And given that much of the Church of Ireland parish infrastructure was in poor shape at the end of the 18th century, um, this perhaps for the first time, this infrastructural improvement, perhaps for the first time, made it possible for the Church of Ireland to think in terms of its mission to the people of Ireland. And as a result, there's been much focus by historians on what has become known as the uh, Protestant Crusade, um, sometimes the Bible War, um, to convert the native Irish from the 1820s on. But we mustn't lose sight of the fact that it wasn't only the Church of Ireland that attempted evangelizing the native Irish. Many dissenting churches were in the lead here, and the Catholic Church, too, um, <clears throat> made use of its missionary orders, like the Vincentians, um, to try and boost the faith and conformity of the Catholic people. In conclusion, then, by the early 19th century, uh, there was this was a time of quite considerable uncertainty for the churches. 
they all had to come to terms with the new situation brought about by the abolition of the penal laws. And the new era not only placed the churches on a more even footing, but all the churches, the leaders of the churches, the better off sections of society uh, in all the denominations, they were all confronted with a good deal of popular agitation. Um, there's the ribbon men, for instance. Um, Church of Ireland particularly would face in the 1830s the tithe agitation, anti-tithe agitation. And um, I will end then, uh, perhaps on a slightly more ecumenical note. Um, given the quite extensive popular unrest, uh, and given the uncertain relations between the churches, it's worth noting, or it's quite striking, that that very interesting Catholic bishop, Bishop Doyle, J.K.L., as he's often known, um, in 1824 issued a call for the reunion of the Catholic and Protestant churches in Ireland. We can say more about that later if you like. Thank you very much. Thank you, Professor Hill. Now, Professor Comerford. Chair, uh, President, uh, Your Grace, and uh, fellow conference participants. Uh, I am very uh, grateful to those who have given me the opportunity to uh, participate in this uh, uh, important uh, commemorative uh, event. I'm proposing to deal uh, with the subject uh, under uh, three headings, the subject of, of disestablishment, under just three main, uh, three main aspects. Firstly, the political context in which this establishment uh, was adopted by Parliament. Secondly, the stated principles and rhetorical formulations that were utilized to justify uh, or to explain uh, this establishment, especially by William Gladstone. And thirdly, just to have a, a brief uh, overview of the substance of the legislation. Uh, now, throughout the 1860s, the House of Commons was fragmented and volatile. The two-party system was only partially effective. There were lots of uh, factions and lots of very powerful individuals. I mean, uh, just to mention Disraeli and Gladstone, for example. But uh, the uh, Lord Palmerston, you know, very many more. Uh, it was then, say, a time of considerable volatility in Parliament. Uh, now, there were many issues that were capable of moving opinion inside and outside Parliament uh, during the, the 1860s. Uh, you know, there was a fear that Napoleon III was planning uh, an invasion. Uh, the American Civil War uh, had uh, enormous uh, 
you know, uh, impact on uh, British uh, economic and diplomatic uh, uh, situations, and uh, indeed right down to uh, 1870 or thereabouts, the prospect of an Anglo-American war was a very uh, live reality. Then, of course, there was the threat for many years of a Fenian invasion from America. There was also a long-standing campaign for further uh, reform of the franchise, uh, which ultimately happens in the form of the Second uh, Reform Act. And then uh, there was the campaign of the Liberation Society, agitating for disestablishment of the state church. And this was driven by the energy and ability of the uh, dissenters, especially in the English Midlands. But uh, by the mid-1850s, uh, it is a, a very uh, powerful uh, movement. Now, which politician could conjure up the magic stroke? and clarify the political chaos around one issue? And the answer proved to be uh, William Gladstone. Uh, his win winning formula was uh, the uh, disestablishment of the state church in Ireland. And he managed to get this, uh, to get a motion approving this through the House of Commons in March 1868. And then he used this as his main, uh, as the main plank on his political platform when it came to uh, the general election of November 1868. <clears throat> and uh, uh, it was uh, a master stroke. It crystallized uh, the uh, British uh, uh, Liberal Party, uh, in a sense, brought the British Liberal Party into existence, uh, certainly into tangible existence, and it got uh, Gladstone uh, to the top of the greasy pole. Uh, and so he came out of the 1868 general election with a majority in uh, Britain and in Ireland, and it was quite clear that uh, he had, you know, uh, as much authority as one could possibly have uh, to pursue this policy. But why Irish disestablishment? Why, why, why did you, what was the particular attraction of, of this policy uh, as a political uh, move in the, in the late 1860s? Now, uh, the members of the established church uh, in Ireland uh, certainly uh, uh, were abhorred by the idea. Uh, so there was obviously that wasn't there was no demand from there. Even uh, Irish dissenters were divided on the issue, with many Presbyterians in particular uh, supporting the established church as a bulwark. Uh, for uh, Protestantism in general. For Irish Catholics in general, disestablishment was not 
a burning issue in the mid uh, 1860s. The uh, 1822 Emancipation Act, and even more importantly, the resolution of the tithes issue in the 1830s um, really had put the question of uh, concerns about the established church very much on the background. Uh, Cardinal Cullen uh, and uh, uh, his bishops were, I mean, they, they were uh, focused on pressurizing the government to give concessions uh, under the headings of education, especially uh, national schools and the Catholic University. So, uh, and of course, by far the most uh, emotive uh, issue for Irish people of all denominations at the time was tenant right. So, the policy of disestablishment, now, of course, I should say that once uh, the policy was enunciated, and once the uh, Liberation Society began to look for support in Ireland, needless to say, the uh, you know prominent Catholics, including Cardinal Cullen, had to be seen to support it, and you know they did. But there was there was no great enthusiasm behind the Catholic Association, you know, which was founded in 1864. They got about a thousand signatures. You know, I mean that, that's not uh, that, that's not a, a good summer evening's work as far as collecting signatures is concerned in in Ireland. So it's not uh, so the, the um, uh, of course they went along with it and welcomed the, the notion of disestablishment uh, of uh, in Ireland, but uh, they weren't really pushing it. Uh, now, the policy of disestablishment then really uh, can be seen as, as uh, you know, it, it was the main plank of his election campaign and uh, it, it worked wonders. And uh, it, it uh, really, but it was, to some, you could say, it was really maybe a, an Irish solution to an English problem. <laughs> it it uh, counted for, uh, uh, because, of course, to get votes in Ireland, uh, in 1868, Gladstone had a whole suite of, of things, uh, and uh, uh, firstly there was the land, uh, then there was uh, 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 the, the um, uh, university, you know, uh, the Catholic university, uh, and then there was, uh, of course, uh, releasing the prisoners because at this stage there were several uh, scores of Fenian prisoners still in jail after 1867. And of course, you can see how qu quickly, uh, you know, that they became an emotive issue. So that uh, the, uh, the, the uh, it wasn't just uh, it wasn't just the promise of disestablishment uh, that, that got uh, uh, that's some his, his very considerable support, his remarkable support in Ireland in, in 1868. Now, the, uh, the Liberation Society had as its central doctrine the principle of separation of church and state. And its literature referred frequently and regularly to the United States and the American Constitution. Now, Gladstone was one of those politicians who needs to, uh, you know, to, to uh, assert that their politics, 
their policies are vindicating principle of one kind or another. However, Gladstone, Gladstone's principles were far removed from those of the Liberation Society. And there is no element of, you know, egalité, much less of laïcité, uh, in, in uh, uh, you know, the motivation that uh, uh, Gladstone uh, admits to uh, for uh, disestablishment. Gladstone, like many of his contemporaries, was steeped in uh, a historicist mindset. Uh, just to give an example, uh, uh, adjacent, uh, when he was uh, putting through the Irish Land Act of 1870, uh, his main preoccupation was proving to his own satisfaction that uh, before the conquest, that the Irish tillers of the soil had certain inalienable rights. And that then, in his mind, uh, justified him in uh, having a different land law, law in Ireland uh, from that uh, which applied in Britain. Um, and you can see where, where this is leading. Um, the, the, uh, so uh, it was, um, it, that, that was his, uh, uh, his main, uh, if you like, ideological justification uh, for, for, for changes in Ireland. Now, in the case of the church, Gladstone latched on to the contemporary debate about the uh, respective claims of the churches in Ireland uh, to be uh, the embodiment of the Church of St. Patrick. And uh, you know, this was, of course, uh, frequently narrowed down to the rather abstruse issue of Episcopal succession. Uh, so. Gladstone got the answer he needed in the form in which he needed, needed it with the publication in 1867 of uh, a book uh, by William Mazier Brady, who was a Trinity graduate, a TCD graduate, and an Irish rector. And the title, the first part of the title was uh, The Alleged uh, conversion of the Irish bishops to the Reformed religion in the time of Queen Elizabeth. And uh, in this, he um, argued against uh, the claims of, uh, the, of, of his own church to be uh, you know, connected in that way with the, with the patrician church. And again, uh, this, this was the kind of justification that Gladstone wanted, that he could say, ah, yes, uh, what we have in Ireland, the established church, it isn't the heir to, uh, you know, something going back to uh, the time of St. Patrick. Uh, so, therefore, uh, I can feel, uh, you know, uh, that I can conscientiously, uh, you know, deal with it uh, differently from how I would deal with the Church of England. Now, again, uh, questions of sincerity and so on, I mean, are, 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 you know, they're just irrelevant, I think, for, for the historian. To, I mean, did Gladstone, uh, you know, was he, uh, was he convinced of this himself? I suppose he convinced himself of things that he wanted, uh, that he found convenient. Who knows? But in any case, I mean, he was a great man. And, and it, he didn't, by the way, suddenly, I mean, uh, he had kept uh, 
the uh, disestablishment and several other things on the boil from about 1865 onwards. So he had, you know, he didn't certainly jump on it. He, in 1868, he made the choice as to which of the many possible subjects he would take up and run with. And, and the one he picked was disestablishment. Now, uh, Gladstone, uh, uh, now this establishment, I mean, it was uh, obviously uh, uh, not uh, uh, popular. Uh, uh, it was anathema to, uh, the, uh, to, to, uh, to, to the members of the established church in Ireland. Uh, but uh, it, was, uh, it, it was very difficult to resist something that had got the approbation of, uh, you know, a, a general victory in a general election. Now, <coughs> uh, of course, uh, by, uh, in, in, you know, Gladstone, and of course, uh, also, he obviously cheated the Liberation Society uh, of their uh, greatest hope. Now, they had recognized again for some time that maybe you could just start with Ireland or maybe even Scotland uh, and, and, uh, and get at the English church that way. But uh, in any case, uh, when they got this opportunity to participate in, uh, the, uh, in this attack on um, the establishment, uh, they couldn't but welcome uh, the opportunity. And uh, uh, they could see that the rest would surely follow in due course. The most pessimistic members of the Liberation Society thought it would take maybe another 10 years before the Church of England was disestablished. <laughs> now, um, but they weren't uh, allowing for uh, the wiliness of, of William Gladstone. Now, the Irish Church Act uh, became law uh, in, on the 26th of July, 1869. And disestablishment itself then, as you know, came into effect on the 1st of January, uh, 1871. Being uh, the endowed state church uh, involved, uh, you know, extensive property holding and, uh, and uh, possessions of, of uh, all kinds of inherited uh, uh, sources and, and resources, uh, including all the historic ecclesiastical property of the country. And the incomes and of, of most church office holders came from the endowments, uh, from the, these historic endowments. Now, as of the 26th of July, 1869, all the property of the church uh, was vested in a new body the commissioners of church temporalities in Ireland. And the commissioners had to account for all of this, uh, you know, vast inheritance and then set about returning some of it uh, to the church or to members of the church and then realizing the financial uh, value of the rest. Now, all places of worship in use by the established uh, church uh, were transferred to the Church of Ireland. All uh, uh, ecclesiastical sites uh, with, uh, you know, where the church was ruinous or not in use 
were transferred to the care of the local authorities. And so uh, the 1869 Act is uh, a major stage in the history of you know, those thousands of little um, uh, sites, uh, cemeteries, sometimes with a small uh, ruined medieval church that, uh, you, that we find, and, and of course with burials in some cases right up to very recent times uh, that you can find uh, throughout Ireland. But then <laughs> that's another story. Uh, the Act encouraged uh, the clergy and laity to consult among themselves and agree on the future structures of church government. Uh, in particular, Gladstone proposed the emergence, he wanted to, to uh, he encouraged the emergence of a representative church body that could be given a charter and uh, the power to take responsibility for the temporal needs of the uh, Church of Ireland. And in late 1869 and through 1870, the church engaged in a series of formal conferences, including, uh, you know, uh, uh, elections of, of lay people from the parishes and so on to attend. Uh, and out of this very, uh, you know, quite very serious and, and uh, um, a, I think man who is exhilarating uh, exercise, uh, they, uh, there emerged the, the General Synod in place, you know, just in time uh, for the end of, of 1870, and so as to be ready to take up responsibility, take up its duties on the 1st of January 1871. Now, uh, this is not to say that there was no voluntary aspect to the life of the church before disestablishment. Uh, and uh, th th that's an important point I'll remember. And as we know from June Cooper's work on, on the Protestant Orphan Society, which was back to 1828, there was a lot of, of this kind of voluntary activity um, alongside the formalities uh, and, and the formal structures of the, of the old established church. Now, in... On the 1st of January 1871, then, the uh, link with the Church of England uh, ended. And uh, as did all the official trappings of uh, the Church of Ireland as a state church, including uh, ecclesiastical courts. Now, all incumbents, uh, clerical and lay, such as school teachers, organists, you know, vergers and so on, were guaranteed an annuity out of the property now in the hands of the commissioners. And uh, uh, the, uh, a complicated system was worked out whereby the uh, beneficiaries could uh, get lump sums or have lump sums transferred to uh, the Church of Ireland and in that way uh, create a, 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 a fund uh, for, for the future. Uh, the um, representative church body was allowed to buy rectors' glebe houses uh, and about 10 acres of land uh, with each at a favorable price. Uh, but otherwise, land formerly the property of the church was sold by the commissioners, uh, with the tenants getting uh, first refusal. Now, Gladstone had... Uh, 
you know, ent entertained the idea uh, that uh, of concurrent endowment for a short while, but uh, that uh, uh, got little support. Uh, and in particular, it was important that the uh, the Catholic Church in Ireland wasn't interested. And so uh, the end of establishment then logically entailed uh, the end of state payments to other churches. And so the Regium Donum uh, paid to the Presbyterians and the annual grant to Manuth uh, were uh, abolished, but in each case with uh, substantial uh, compensation, handsome compensation, shall we say. Uh, then uh, uh, also, of course, lay patrons uh, who were still uh, around in the, in the 19th century, the, lay, the, the, the people who had the, the right to, uh, to, to nominate uh, to uh, uh, livings in the church. And of course, these rights were regarded as property. They, were, they were, uh, could be bought and sold. Uh, and these were, the owners of these were bought out. And, and uh, um, that, again, was... Uh, another charge, another expense on, on the, uh, the income of the commissioners. Now, looking beyond the purely ecclesiastical and confessional impact, disestablishment is a key building block in uh, state formation in modern Ireland. The 1869 Act placed the commissioners explicitly in the footprint of the ecclesiastical commission set up by the 1833 uh, Act, which was the first state interference with the property of the church. In 1881, Gladstone's Second Land Act set up the Irish Land Commission, and that was put into the same office, actually, uh, in, in uh, what is now the Merion Hotel. Uh, and and uh, uh, again, and the same people, the same uh, you know office staff, everyone uh, continued on there. Uh, but more than that, the, the uh, uh, you know, Gladstone had intended, hoped that uh, the uh, exit the whole enterprise would create a large surplus, uh, which it did. And uh, now, by uh, a, you know, the first uh, government now, because the the surplus was a. To be at the disposal of Parliament, which effectively, of course, meant the government of the day, and it had the advantage of being money that the government could spend without having to raise taxation. Now, the first uh, person actually to take advantage of this uh, was, uh, ironically, Disraeli. But uh, I mean, uh, there's a whole series of things from. Uh, this point onwards uh, that are funded by uh, the proceeds of disestablishment, the, the, the funds from uh, the, the commissioners. Uh, the Board of Intermediate Education, founded in 1878, hugely important uh, uh, development. The Royal University of 1879. The teacher training colleges of the 1880s. Uh, the, the, um, then uh, a whole series of uh, relief of distress measures uh, taken in the 1880s and 1890s. Uh, above all, uh, the, when Gladstone brought in his second land act in 1881, uh, 
it hadn't a hope of solving the land problem because there were about a million tenants who had a, a, who were in arrears uh, to their landlords and the landlords couldn't really do without the money most of them and the, and the tenants had said they couldn't find the money anywhere uh, and they didn't intend to and so uh, Gadsden resolved this by uh, giving uh, something like uh, uh, two uh, yes, two and a half million uh, pounds from uh, the funds of, of, of the commissioners uh, and so on right down to uh, finally the, I mean the, the even the Department of Agriculture and Technical instruction set up in 1899 was uh, uh, funded to the tune of five million uh, pounds uh, from the proceeds of the uh, of the establishment act so again uh, to see can see it not just as uh, uh, you know a narrowly religious or confessional thing it's also a very a very important part of the uh, the state's uh, uh, development of, of uh, the nation and, and, and its uh, uh, facilities uh, in, in the 19th century. Thank you very much. Um, thank you, Professor Comerford. That's, that's marvelous. So we've had two very focused perspectives, one providing uh, an overview on the manner and fashion in which the Church of Ireland uh, functioned and operated within the Irish Constitution, and secondly, then a, a close and, uh, even closer analysis of a variety of aspects on the, of the activist establishment itself and its implications, which I think the last observations just underlined its in, enduring influence and indeed the, the, the amount of money that was, was involved. Now, it's at this moment we actually expand the, the forum to embrace the, the audience and uh, there is a, a microphone going around, so if you would wish to make a contribution or wish to ask a question, uh, I'd be grateful if you would raise your hand and then wait for a microphone to come uh, to you uh, before, we, uh, before you speak. Um, but meanwhile, while that's, while that's taking place, I would like to, if I may, begin by touching on one of the aspects that both uh, speakers had made reference to. And this is the question of the significance of the active union in terms of the, the Church of Ireland. Because uh, as those of us who have, are familiar with the biography of uh, Archbishop Agar, you'll know uh, the extent to which he uh, <coughs> so much effort and energy into ensuring that the nature of the church uh, relationship of the Church of Ireland and Church of England would be uh, would be conjoined after the Act of Union. And uh, I think it, perhaps maybe a case can be made that in the short term that was beneficial, but in the longer term um, it was less so. But I just begin with begin our questioning and our discussion uh, with, with that at that point. So I will ask uh, both our our panelists, if they have any thoughts on that before we um, broaden things out further. Yeah. So, Jackie, would you like to have any thoughts on the significance potentially of the active union in terms of the uh, Church of Ireland? Um, I suppose um, um, what 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 stands out is the um, is the promise that it was going to unite the churches of Ireland and the Church of England forever. Um, and that obviously 
provided a good deal of reassurance to uh, members of the Church of Ireland, um, not all of whom by any means supported the Act of Union, but um, who I suppose were, were very glad to, to know that um, the interests of the Church um, and its various privileges were likely to be uh, maintained into the future. Um. Well, uh, I suppose it just uh, at the time of disestablishment, obviously most uh, uh, members of the Church of Ireland fairly quickly accepted the situation, but there were others who uh, said this is a small number who said that this is the ultimate betrayal, mm. and that, uh, and, and that, of course, is really the, the origins of the Home Rule movement. Mm. You know, the, 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 these were some, some of these people were uh, at the meeting, you know, at which uh, Isaac Butt uh, launches the Home Government Association, and and, and there's there are a number of quite explicit expressions along those lines saying, you know, that that uh, uh, now that. Uh, uh, the, this has been done to the church. We no longer feel, you know, uh, uh, obliged to to uh, to the union. Mm -hmm. no, I was very struck in terms of just doing some homework uh, for this uh, uh, conference this afternoon. I uh, came upon a document produced by a body known as the Church and State Alliance, which obviously is the antithesis of your Liberation Society, which you, to which you made reference, Professor Comerford. And this organization is called the Church and State Alliance, both in England and Ireland. And uh, they produced a broadside which had, quote, a dozen good reasons why the church should not be disestablished or disendowed. And the ninth of these, I don't think the order is especially uh, compelling, and it reads, quote, because in the year 1800, when the Irish Parliament was abolished by its own consent, they made a bargain with the Parliament and people of England and the Protestant Church in Ireland uh, that, that the Protestant Church in Ireland should be upheld, and because in 1829, when the Catholic Emancipation Act was passed, the Irish Roman Catholic bishops swore on their Bibles that they would never interfere with the rights and privileges of the Protestant Church. Well, I, I suspect probably the first half of that uh, a, a point makes, carries more weight than the second. But nonetheless, I mean, it does, it does emphasise the extent of of of, of feeling uh, that the whole issue uh, generated. And I'm just struck myself by a perception that. If we touch on something that I know, uh, <coughs> Professor Hill, you have a, a, a lot of knowledge of, the, the, the extension of the, to which you made reference, the extension of the fabric, the improvement of the fabric of the church in the early, early 19th century. There was a lot of reason for optimism uh, then. Uh, indeed, you know, uh, allow that to the, the religious evangelical revival that occurs with the next generation. So uh, I'm just, uh, I'm just, trying to tease out if we can, are we warranted in stating that there was a sense of optimism within the church in the first half of, or not maybe the first half, first quarter perhaps, first 30 years maybe of the, of the century, and it's the second 30 years then, extending right up until well, 40 years then, 1870, that's the, there is a contrast. But any, any comment on the, that sense of optimism followed by trouble? Um, well, I'm glad you've mentioned the question of the infrastructure of the Church of Ireland because um, it's an aspect of the history of the Church which has really attracted very little attention from scholars. Um, however, that's changed in um, very recent times thanks to that um, terrific book by Mike O'Neill, 
um, uh, the Episcopal visitation of oh, yes. the Diocese of Mies um, in um, uh, from 17th century down to uh, down to the 19th century, and um, he he, um, he shows how very um, uh, how very poor the infrastructure of the Church of Ireland was right through the 17th and 18th centuries. Um, for instance, in the Diocese of Meath, when Bishop O'Byrne came, uh, became bishop in the 1790s, um, something like um, half the parish churches um, were described um, as in ruins. Um, some were described as in ruins since 1641. Um, and one can see how utterly impossible it was for the Church of Ireland to think in any sort of terms of launching a mission to convert people in Ireland um, while that was the case. But owing to the um, generosity of the Board of First Fruits, uh, plus extra parliamentary subventions. Um, by the time, in the case of Bishop O'Byrne, who was very much in the lead in this respect, by the time uh, that his um, time in office ended in the 1820s, pretty well every parish church had um, a church which was uh, in repair. There was a glebe house glebe lands, and in those circumstances, um, I think as Professor Kelly says, it was possible for the Church of Ireland to, um, you know, adopt a, a far more positive attitude about the possibility of bringing its message uh, beyond its own members to uh, members of the, the native population. Now, I would like to extend this out to, to the floor. Yes, there's an arm over, raised over just on the, my left. Hello, I was just, this is for um, Jackie, I think. I was always a little bit confused about why the conversion rate in uh, England and Wales was seems to be a lot more successful than Ireland. And I, 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 I just wonder what the, the conversion rate was and what was the difference between the two? Um, well, I suppose in many ways you would expect that Wales, given its um, own language, given its remoteness from London, that it would show many of the same symptoms as the problems facing the Church of Ireland. But um, in fact, what seems to have happened is that as some of you probably know, um, the Tudor dynasty in England, um, the Welsh thought of the Tudors as one of their own. And to that extent, when Tudor reform began, um, to some extent under Henry VII and then under Henry VIII, um, in other words, when the county shire system was applied to Wales, when Welsh MPs were invited to join the House of Commons in London, 
um, this was all seen as part of Tudor reform. And I think the same is true then. The same is true of um, the ecclesiastical reforms, that they are regarded in some, to a considerable extent, as part of, um, of Tudor reform. And of course, compared with Ireland, um, the native Welsh were provided with um, religious uh, liturgy and so on um, in, in their own language uh, at a far earlier stage. So it made it much more easy to convert people. Now, you know, you can argue that it takes until the coming of the Methodists, you know, in the later 18th, early 19th centuries for, you know, the very poor people perhaps to be fully brought on board. But there is a very different um, response in Wales from the situation in Ireland. Thank you. Anybody? So just gentlemen. Thank you. Could I, ask, could I ask two questions, please? One is whether the monarch played any role in this. And secondly, could somebody clarify the position in Scotland as to whether there is or was an established church in which one is, was? Thank you. I, I, I don't think I would venture into that second, answering the second question. That's a, but uh, in, in connection with the uh, disestablishment, oh yes, I mean, uh, Queen Victoria greatly uh, regretted uh, disestablishment, uh, but um, ultimately uh, she uh, recognized that there was no point in uh, trying to face down a House of Commons which had uh, you know, won an election specifically on this subject. And so um, uh, she did do a lot to, to uh, reconcile, uh, you know, the, the uh, conservatives in the House of Lords, you know, to, uh, and to get them to, to go along with, with, the, with the, the measure. And there were a few minor amendments. Uh, one of them indeed to do with, with, with what to do with the surplus because originally Gladstone intended that every, uh, you know, small uh, hospital in the country would get, uh, you know, generous funding out of, out of this. Uh, what, uh, by the time uh, the legislation came, it simply said that these monies would be at the disposal of Parliament. Uh, but, uh, you know, she, she did, uh, uh, she was very, uh, she was very well informed about it all. She regretted what was happening, uh, but uh, she just, she obviously, she had to make uh, the best of it. And I think we may. Um, and just on the issue of the church in Scotland, um, that remarkable figure, of course, John Knox in the 16th century was responsible for helping to introduce Calvinist uh, principles in Scotland, which took root, um, partly because Scotland, compared with the other parts of these islands, was relatively quite well educated and it was easier for it to take hold. Um, the Calvinist Kirk, um, it, it had slightly tricky relations with the monarchy through the 17th century. But of course, when William arrived, 
in the 1680s, um, not only perhaps in terms of his personal religion, would it have been more, <laughs> more akin to Calvinism, but um, he, of course, owed uh, considerable debt to Scottish support for you know, his uh, invasion of England and takeover of uh, control. So he was prepared to recognize the Kirk in Scotland, and that continued to be the case. I have a question uh, in relation to dissenting voices within uh, the Church of Ireland that would have positively embraced um, disestablishment. I could just imagine that somebody could take James Usher and reimagine him as saying something about an indigenous church that would do its own thing. Was that something that was happening at all? Both papers did not refer to any kind of uh, dissenting within the Church of Ireland. So I'm interested, is that uh, just the, the case right across the board? Do you, to the best of my knowledge, uh, there, you know, there, you can't find a small number of, of people who, uh, you know, didn't, uh, you know, who, who didn't become, uh, you know, just anxious and oppositional about it, you know, said, well, you know, maybe we can work out something, but they are very few in number. I mean, uh, I think Aubrey de Vere, maybe, uh, who was a convert from Catholicism, he was, uh, he was one of them, but uh, I, I'm not aware of any, but, but the thing is, I mean, the, the bishops, uh, of, uh, you know, they uh, when you know when they considered, uh, you know, trying to enter into negotiations with Gladstone as he was preparing the act, uh, they considered Britain. And they said, no, you know, we'll be eaten alive if we are seen to have anything whatever to do with uh, with this. So uh, there was a very uh, uh, th there was very strong an antipathy to it. And uh, uh, now I'm not saying that you wouldn't find uh, you know an element, but there was very uh, it was very small. There were, there were a number of voices. There was the Archdeacon Stopford, who was uh, who presenting from the point that once the electorate had spoken, which is a particularly con contemporary currency, I dare say. Uh, you know, that there was no choice but to effectively go along with it. Now, that echoes the uh, Professor Cuthbert's earlier observation in terms of this, the dominance of the House of Commons, which had made up its mind, because uh, I mean, one would have anticipated then, as was to be the case later, the House of Lords might have put up perhaps even a sterner re resistance than it did. But there seems to be a minority, uh, which, which raises a very interesting final point I'll just leave you with, because I think we've pretty much come to our end of our session, is that you know one of the... Uh, rewards, if you will, or one of the implications of the, of the church being established was the, the, the liberty it had in terms of the tithe. Uh, but in, in practical terms, you're really talking about a century of incessant criticism uh, being leveled on, on, on the church from really from the 1730s to the 1830s, which in retrospect uh, really took a, took a heavy toll, I would think, on, 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 the, on the church as, uh, as, as the church established. Particularly once you move into the early 19th century, when we move from an era in which privilege is regarded as, as an acceptable phenomenon of the social order and the political order, when you move into the 19th century, when privilege is increasingly becoming under under, under challenge and under threat. But look, it's we're moving uh, very close to ten past uh, 
three, the next session is, is, is scheduled to begin. I'll just give you a moment just to catch breath while we move uh, pretty much directly on. Uh, but uh, before I conclude, I would just like to express my own thanks, and I hope my thanks on behalf of the, 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 the room and uh, everybody uh, who may listen to this in the future to uh, our two speakers uh, who provided, a, I think, a, a very fine context from which the discussion for the rest of the afternoon can be brought forward. So thank you very much. Ladies and gentlemen, um, it's, it's wonderful to be moving so seamlessly from the, the concept, and thank you to the previous uh, panel for setting, the, setting out the stall uh, in which we can feed now the consequences of this establishment. Um, the task of this panel, the second panel, is to look at how the Church of Ireland as an independent church adapted to the changing society, particularly of the late 19th uh, century in Ireland, and indeed how disestablishment um, 
how it shaped really both the church and indeed Ireland in the hundred years since 1870. Um, and two of our speakers who I'll introduce now um, will focus primarily on the changes that uh, came about in the church and two on the changes in wider society in Ireland. Um, so before that, just to introduce myself, um, uh, Trevor Sargent is Anam Dunn, is Ir Kahirlach Me, Ir Common Gaelic Nahaglisha. Common Gaelic Nahaglisha, or in English known as the Irish Guild of the Church, um, is one of those organizations, I suppose, that um, grew in that hundred years since disestablishment. Uh, 1914. It was established, in fact, very, very appropriately, just next door um, in the Molesworth Hall behind St. Anne's Church. So it, it is a, in many ways, one of the consequences one could say, perhaps, um, just to look at a very small uh, example, um, but it had a very interesting and has indeed a very flourishing and interesting um, uh, history. Um, it ranged in its membership from those that would describe themselves as unionist to nationalist, and even within nationalism, it ranged from uh, people who were not so uh, taken with the um, with, with the the nineteen sixteen rising, for example, such as Douglas Hyde, um, to people like Roger Casement. Um, who was busy about business, he couldn't attend the first meeting, but that's another story, a very interesting story indeed. Uh, so that there, there was uh, uh, quite a range, and all we can do is try and do, do some justice to the, the breadth of the topic and the consequences that arise from this establishment. Um, and of course, as the previous panel did talk about, um, the Irish language was very late in the day in terms of Church of Ireland, but this... Um, book, uh, which goes back to 1861, so it's, it's pre-disestablishment, uh, is a book of common prayer in Irish and English, but of course it's published by the United Churches of uh, Ireland and England. Um, so there is a history in that which um, uh, I, I, I'm very involved with myself. Um, but before um, actually hearing our speakers, can I just take the opportunity to introduce, many of you will know them much more than I will indeed, um, given that there's so many academics here in this room. Um, but um, I, I just want to say in the order in which they'd be speaking, uh, Marie Coleman, um, who joined Queen's University Belfast in September 2004, where she's a lecturer in Irish history in the School of History and uh, Anthropology, graduate of U UCD, has worked previously at the National Library of Ireland, here in the Royal Irish Academy, um, the University of Limerick, University College Dublin, where she held a Government of Ireland postdoctoral fellowship, 2001-2003, uh, and National University of Ireland, Galway. Principal research interests are in 20th century Irish history, especially the Irish Revolution. So, Marie will speak first, but and second, uh, Alan Ford, uh, born in Dublin, educated at uh, TCD, before that, of course, the high school, which celebrates its own 150th, 1870 it was founded, so another reason for Alan to be on the panel. Uh, but um, educated at TCD in Cambridge University after a period of Irish foreign service, he taught at Durham University from 1988, 
before moving to Nottingham in 1998, where he served as Professor of Theology, Dean of the Faculty of Arts and Pro Vice-Chancellor for Teaching and Learning, now Professor Emeritus. His main research interest is Irish religious history. His publications include The Protestant Reformation in Ireland, 1997, and James Usher, Theology, History and Politics in Early Modern Ireland and England. His most recent book was The Church of Ireland and Its Past, History, Interpretation and Identity, published in 1918 and co-edited with Mark Empey and Miriam Moffat, who is our next speaker. And Miriam uh, teaches church history in St. Patrick's College, Maynooth, and the Church of Ireland Theological Institute. Her work focuses on the history of religion in Ireland, particularly on how conceptions of identity have been established and nurtured. She's co-editor with Alan Ford and Mark Empty of the Church of Ireland in his past, as I mentioned. Um, and finally, uh, last but not least, as they say, uh, Ian Dalton, who uh, will be speaking forth, is a recipient um, of the Royal Historical Society's Alexander Prize, visiting research fellow in the Centre for Contemporary Irish History, Trinity College, Dublin. He has published An Unmitigated Blessing, the Disestablishment of the Church of Ireland in the Church of Ireland Journal Search, spring of 2019. He was a co-author with Dr. Ida Millen of Protestants and Irish, the Minorities Research for Place in Independent Ireland, published last year. Also with Dr. Millen, he is currently researching a co-authored volume, Wicklow in the Irish Revolution, 1912 to 23. And in relation to his book, which I'm enjoying at the moment, um, I, and this is not a commercial break, but um, it's, it's a fine volume uh, and available in all good bookshops, of course. <laughs> he didn't pay me to say that. I just thought I would because I'm enjoying it. Um, but that being said, um, we, we do have a, a very well-structured, I have to say, um, uh, set of contributions here because uh, we will be, uh, you know, having discussed the matter, the panelists have... Um, taken different aspects of the consequences. Dr. Marie Coleman from Queen's University in Belfast will begin and we'll look at an aspect of the consequences for Ireland, uh, the church indeed, and in particular with focus on the northern part of the island uh, with the distinctive character that, that brought to the whole picture. So if I could ask Marie. Uh, thank you very much, Trevor. Um, I suppose I'm, I'm used to sitting here in other places speaking about commemorations which are centenary commemorations and what, this event is one of many commemorations being held across the island but most of them are centenary ones but I think we do need to look at the importance of disestablishment for its impact on what came later in the decade of centenaries. I think Disestablishment forms a very important context, background context, to the event of the events of the 19-teens and 1920s, and the impact which they had on Ireland, but particularly on the non-Catholic denominations, and especially leading up to partition. Uh, I think we have a lot of controversial commemorations ahead of us. I think the recent issues with the RIC show that. And uh, we would all be fools if we didn't accept that some of these commemorations are going to be difficult for the Protestant community on the island. Um, 
one of the more sobering discoveries for the non-Catholic denominations in the new free state in 1926 was the revelation of the extent to which their numbers had declined when the first census of the free state was taken in 1926, recording a decline of about a proportional decline of about one third in all of the non-Catholic denominations since the previous census in 1911. Now, the causes of this demographic change, and I think we do need to see it as an important, a significant demographic change in modern Irish history, are widely debated. We hear a lot of, I would say, not very accurate and, in fact, possibly hysterical descriptions of this as maybe ethnic cleansing or, a, uh, as I recently saw it described in the Belfast newsletter, a Protestant holocaust. And I... Apart from, I don't think they're very accurate, I also think they distract from a proper dispassionate analysis of this phenomenon, because this was, uh, remains an important period of the history of the Church of Ireland post-disestablishment that we do need to get to grips with. Undoubtedly, the political and military upheaval of the period, especially the years 1920 to 22, were very significant for the Protestant churches in Ireland, including the Church of Ireland. And we're very lucky here in trying to peel back the layers of this that the Protestant churches have such good historical records. And particularly, I think the Church of Ireland is extremely lucky in the high quality of the records held in the representative church body library. And even for those of us who are um, stranded in the north and can't always get down to it, the fact that the recent digitization of the past archives of the Church of Ireland Gazette are hugely uh, important for those of us doing research remotely. But the, the RCB library is a mine of wonderful information. And they give us a very good sense of the experience of the Church of Ireland in this period. Rural Dean's reports, which I'm sure there's plenty of clergy here who have every year had to fill these in. Um, Rural Dean's reports record very clearly in between 20 and 22, that many of their members are leaving their parishes due to the political turmoil. It's written there in black and white, so we can't deny it. Other records, such as the number of children being entered for Sunday school examinations, also show significant declines in those years 20 to 22. And it's definitely the case that not all of those can be accounted for by the departure of the British garrison. It's, it's a factor, but it's not, um, it's not the main factor. At the same time, we can't, we can't just say that this happens between 20 and 22, and the political and military turmoil are the reasons for it. Once again, if we go back to the church's own records, we see the impact, the longer-term impact, going back probably to 1870 and before, of other factors in this demographic change within the Protestant population on the island. They show the impact particularly of voluntary emigration on the decline of Protestant numbers. Whether it's migration outside rural from rural areas or emigration from the island itself. Likewise, analysis of church records of baptisms, marriages and burials illustrate how, how parishes, and I'm thinking particularly of a lot of the isolated and smaller rural parishes, recorded fewer baptisms than marriages or burials over a period of a, of a decade or so. If you take certain parishes from 1911 and 1926 and look at the demographics, many of them 
are recording fewer baptisms and more burials, and that obviously is not going to be a sustainable situation. The revolutionary period was undoubtedly a di difficult, those were difficult years for Southern Protestants in particular, who were disproportionately the targets of assaults on their persons or property for a variety of reasons, partly because of their religion, but normally due to religion and a mixture of other factors such as their politics or their links to the crown forces in the British state, or even simple agrarian jealousy, which still goes back to what Professor Comerford talked about in the late 19th century, agrarian jealousy at the fact that generally um, Protestants had large, larger-sized land holdings. But this is where disestablishment comes in. I think, and I know as a historian here, uh, counterfactual history is something we should eschew and we should stick to things that we have evidence for, but I think it's, if it's fair enough to assume that the experience of Protestants in the revolutionary period would have been much more difficult without disestablishment. It was bad enough that they were seen as having the wrong, if you like in inverted commas, uh, political views of being associated with elements of the state like the crown forces. Had they been seen as adherence to a church associated with a state which had now been repudiated by the majority of the population in the South at least, I think the experience of Protestants in those key years could have been much worse. I think also the absence of that link between church and state made it much easier for the church institutionally and every other way to cope with what came after 1921 and 22. When it came to political partition, there was no need to think about religious partition. You didn't end up with a scenario where part of the church was part, was part of an established church in the north and the Southern Church had to maybe disestablish itself then. So I think in the 50, looking 50 years on, disestablishment made life easier for the Church of Ireland to deal with the political turmoil that happened 50 years later. Now, a lot of the focus of the debate of the period which I look at, which is the, the, the revolutionary period, is on this question of why so many Protestants disappeared, why they left or why their numbers declined. But I sometimes think we're asking the wrong question. And maybe we should look at 1921 and 22 and the creation of independent Ireland and ask ourselves why it was that those who stayed chose to remain. And I think church leaders played a hugely important part in easing that transition. We're talking about centenaries and commemorations, and I believe there's, there's appointments of archbishops and all sorts of important things going on at the moment. A hundred years ago, possibly one of the most important appointments of an archbishop within the Church of Ireland in modern times was the appointment of John Gregg as Archbishop of Dublin. And I think Gregg at the, at the church leadership level played a hugely important role in encouraging his flock to accommodate to the new state. You get that parish level as well where you find local rectors uh, uh, similar, acting similarly to Greg in accommodating with the um, agents of the new state. But it would have been so, it would have been the easier choice for many of these Protestants would probably have been to leave. I was reading recently that that very interesting little book on Senator Sir John Keane. And when Capaquin House was burned in early 1923, 
By far the easiest thing for him to do would have been to up sticks and go to England. But he didn't. He chose to stay. He chose to remain to rebuild Capaquin and to pursue a career in politics in the Irish Senate for over 20 years. So I think an important aspect to look at as well is that contribution of Protestants to the new state, whether through politics, culture, education, that might be another aspect which we could uh, explore. That's not to say that life in independent Ireland was easy for, uh, for the Protestants who remained in the new free state. Their numbers continued to decline. Political decisions, particularly I think in the first half of the 20th century at least, were strongly influenced by Catholic social teaching. Nevertheless, I, I can't help seeing parallels between the response to, of Protestants in 1920 to 1870. 1870 left the Church of Ireland in a position which was not of their own choosing. I think 1921, with the partition and the creation of the Free State, was not of their choosing either. But in both cases, the response was similar. And it's characterized by his, I would see it as a tale of survival, of resilience, and successful adaptation to new and changed circumstances. And I think overall, in both cases, responding to disestablishment and to partition and independence, that was not an insignificant achievement. Can you hear me now? This is the first time I've ever spoken from the comfort of a sofa. And I, I would just want to remind you, apropos of nothing, of the definition of a professor. A professor is someone who talks in someone else's sleep. And I hope I don't join you in your slumbers uh, halfway through this. Um, 1870 was an extraordinary year for the Church of Ireland. It was an enormous shock. And I think that's one of the things that we've, we've understood from the, from the previous comments. Um, suddenly, the church was faced with the, the horror. I mean, I, I live in the UK, so I'm, this has personal dimension. Was faced with the horror of democracy. Uh, it stopped being an aristocracy ruled over by the bishops and the politicians. It became a democracy. It created a general synod uh, with a, a, a constitution that enabled the church to take decisions. And quite dramatically, in 1870 and 71, the church did that. And what actually happened was, was very interesting. A lot came out of the woodwork. The church previously had been part of the Church of England, had been almost subsumed within the Church of England. In 1870-71, it could become itself what it wanted to be. And what it wanted to be was a terrible shock for the Irish bishops, because the Church of Ireland, as it turned out, was a very evangelical church. The laity in particular, the laity in the north of Ireland in particular, had a fundamentalist attitude to the Bible and biblical truth, which they wanted the Church of Ireland to espouse fully. 
There was a small group of high church clergy within the Church of Ireland. Those of you familiar with St. John's or St. Bart's parishes here in Dublin will know what I mean, which had a, a much more, if you like, Catholic view of liturgy and worship. Um, and these were protected while the Church of Ireland was part of the Church of England, because the Church of England was much broader than the Church of Ireland. But from 1871 onwards, suddenly the Church of Ireland sought on all possible occasions to define itself as evangelical. And in 1871, what they did was really interesting. They decided to pass a new set of disciplinary canons. This was the rules that governed what clergy were to wear, what they were to do during services. And they used this opportunity of the general synod, the laity in the general synod, deciding what they wanted their clergy to do, to try and rule out all dangerous Catholic, Romeward-looking practices. They banned incense. Uh, they banned bowing um, to the altar. They bowed... They banned, and this is the most amazing thing, they banned the placing of a cross on the altar. Sorry, not the altar, on the table. The altar was Catholic and sacrificial. Um, and this canon of 1871 caused endless trouble down through the next century. It wasn't rescinded till 1964. Um, but it was there in the Church of Ireland and couldn't be rescinded because of the nature of the General Synod. The General Synod required a majority of the House of Bishops, of the House of Laity, uh, and of the House of Clergy voting separately. It required a two-thirds majority for any major changes to the Constitution that was set up in 1871. And, of course, that was very hard to get. So what had happened in 1870 was the Church had become a democracy. It had decided what it wanted to do. And in terms of its fundamental beliefs, it wanted to make sure it was an evangelical church. Many of the clergy, most of the bishops, were horrified at this and fought a long rearguard action. But that was what had been decided. Now, what did these evangelicals believe? Essentially, um, they defined the Church of Ireland by what it was not. The Church of Ireland was not a Roman Catholic. There's a, a lovely quote from uh, an archbishop in the 17th century uh, about uh, his flock in the Church of Ireland. He said, they were like burnt children that so dread the fire that they can never get far enough away from their fear. Catholicism was the feared other which they wanted to be as far away from as possible. And this was evident not just in the disciplinary rules, in the way liturgy was to be celebrated, but it was evident also in the theology of the Church of Ireland, in what was taught to its clergy. The divinity school in Trinity, the sole place where ordinands were trained in the Church of Ireland, um, that one of the key textbooks which all Church of Ireland clergy up till very recently would have remembered um, was um, George Salmon, his, uh, The Infallibility of the Church, which was an attack upon the uh, Roman Catholic Church, on the doctrine of infallibility, on the errors and mistakes of Roman Catholicism. And this kind of was a kind of a, a negative theology. We are defined by what we are not. Uh, and all the clergy who went through Trinity came out with a firm sense of 
what it was to be Protestant, where the Roman Catholic Church uh, went wrong. And that was one of the, the dominant motifs right through the next hundred years uh, after 1870. The other area in which the Church of Ireland defined itself intellectually after 1870 was in the way it wrote its own history. We all have our own stories of what we are, uh, and we will all tell people the wonderfully edited version of our lives to make us look as good and wonderful as we think we are. And the Church of Ireland, with the freedom it got in 1870, was free again to rewrite its history. And it rewrote its history inevitably to try and make itself seem as Irish as it could. There were a stream of history books, popular and academic, right down to the 1950s, which basically retold the origin myth of the Church of Ireland, which Jackie referred to, uh, was started by Archbishop Usher in the 1620s, the idea that the Church of Ireland went right back to St. Patrick. St. Patrick, when you look at him, wasn't a Tridentine Catholic bishop. Cal Surprise, you know, it was a thousand years too early. What Patrick was, when you look at what he did, he was basically a Protestant. And the Protestant, and oh, no, now you see, this, this, that, that would have been received with complete silence and approval in 1870 in the Church of Ireland, because this was self-evidently true. And the church that Patrick had created was a, basically a Protestant church. It wasn't until the 12th century when the Pope sent over, as it were, bishops to Ireland, sent over the pallia for the bishops in Ireland, that the Church of Ireland became Roman. And that led to its decline and decay and required the Reformation in the 16th century, which, unfortunately, the Irish people had failed to see was the true Church of Ireland. Now, this, if you like, myth uh, of, of what the Church of Ireland was and where it came from was tremendously powerful for the members of the Church of Ireland because it meant that they saw themselves as the Church of Ireland, entitled to hold the bishoprics and the cathedrals and the, and, and the parishes. All these Protestant themes were reinforced, if you like, by the mutual hostility from the Catholic Church. The Catholic Church believed that the Church of Ireland was not a true church. Its ministers weren't true ministers and was absolutely happy to say so right down to the 1950s and 60s. And the Church of Ireland responded in the inevitable fashion that you do respond when someone tells you that you're an illegitimate bastard with hostility. This lasted until the end of our period, the one that we're talking about now, the 1960s and early 1970s. Then a dramatic change. It was like a dam burst. We have a, a period of unchanging hostility um, uh, in the Church of Ireland right down to the 1960s. In 1964, the Church of Ireland General Synod finally voted to remove the ban on the cross on the altar, on the communion table. Um, it wasn't until 1974 they changed the rest of the disciplinary canons, but they did. Um, in 1964, um, Salmon's book on infallibility was removed from the reading list for clergy uh, in, in Trinity. And basically, uh, a more modern form of theology was introduced for the students, which wasn't about, you know, uh, we're right, you're wrong in terms of Catholicism, but was simply a general study of, of, of systematic theology. And of course, in 1964, something else happened, and that was 
the uh, Vatican decree on ecumenism, which edged away, uh, moved away decisively uh, from the idea that the uh, Church of Ireland was not a true church. Um, and you find uh, from the 1960s onwards uh, a mellowing, if you like, of the idea that the Church of Ireland was defined by not being Roman Catholic and a mellowing of relations between Catholics uh, and Protestants uh, in Ireland. And of course, you have one further element, particularly in the south of Ireland, the growth of secularism and the dramatically changing religious and educational situation, particularly in, in the south of Ireland. And that leads on, if you like, to the completely changed intellectual outlook of the Church of Ireland in the 70s and beyond, when they rejected the idea that they could exclusively claim to be descended from St. Patrick, that they were defined by everything that wasn't Roman Catholic. That said, though, there is one little legacy which uh, persisted. I said that evangelicalism was stronger in the North than the South. And one of the legacies of the 1960s is it's quite clear when you look at the progress of ecumenism in the 70s, it was much faster in the south than it was in the north. Hardly surprisingly, when many of the Church of Ireland population in the north saw the IRA as a Catholic organization assassinating and killing their friends and relations. Ecumenism wasn't on their agenda. So you have, if you like, a, a, a contrast, if you like, in the Church of Ireland between the Church in the North and the Church in the South, with the Church in the North remaining more evangelical and fundamental, and the Church in the South changing very rapidly from the 60s and 70s onwards. And the only, the, the key thing which preserved the unity of the Church uh, in this period was that basic constitutional fact that it still required a two-thirds majority of all three houses of the General Synod to get through significant change. As a result, significant change didn't happen, and the Church remained united, Church North and South. Thank you. Is this on? Yep. All right. Okay. Following on from what Mary and Alan have said, and I'm sure leading into where Ian is going too, it's all in a fairly similar vein. Um, we're all familiar with the expression, a double whammy, but a triple whammy might be something more of a rarity. But this is exactly what happened to the Church of Ireland in the century that began in 1870. First, the Church was deprived of its established status, which reduced its political influence and made its financial well-being uh, depend, made it uh, dependent on its wealthier members for its financial well-being. Then, over the following decades, the division and sale of the land as estates resulted in the removal of and the migration out of the country of a lot of the wealthier people on whom it had come to depend. And in fact. In the disestablishment debate in the House of Lords, the night before the Act was passed for the last time in the House of Lords, William Connor McGee, an Irish man who was Bishop of Peterborough, the English Diocese of Peterborough, he warned in the House of Lords that revolutions generally start with religion and then move on to land. So it was foreseen and people were sort of saying, look, be careful what you're starting because you don't know where it's going to end. Um, then. In 1921, the creation of the Irish Free State resulted in the departure of yet more church members. 
It can be argued, however, that the uncoupling of the church's connection to the British state that occurred at disestablishment enabled or perhaps forced the Church of Ireland to establish a new way of being and allowed it to imagine itself and a place for itself in a country that was itself undergoing significant change. And I'll add a fourth issue in there because we've already had the disestablishment, we've had the, Depart the Land Act, the Land Act, the departure of the landed classes, or many of them, and we've also had the creation of the Free State. And a fourth one, which I don't think has received enough attention, but I think is very, very important at local level, is the passing of the Local Government Act. Because with the passing of the Local Government Act in 1898, the control of local government passed into the hands of what were the modern-day county councillors. So before that, Protestant businesses had been guaranteed a market, they'd been guaranteed that they would supply the local hospitals, the local workhouses, the local jails. There was a guaranteed market, and pretty quickly, the uh, now, with the management of these institutions in the hands of essentially Catholic nationalist local politicians, they're buying their bread, their potatoes, their coal, their turf, their whatever is else, elsewhere. And now Protestant business is going to decline. It's gradual, it's slow, but there is no longer a guaranteed type, uh, place of employment. It happens gradually and it happens in small ways at local levels, but it does mean that the certainty and the surety that you would that at least one member of your family would be guaranteed a significant employment that would have been both from an economic point of view but also from a stability and certainty and being assured of your uh, ability to cope into the future, it would have been a very unsettling thing too. So these challenges which faced the Church of Ireland were not insignificant and parishes had to justify their own existence and parishes which weren't able to uh, raise sufficient monies were forced to amalgamate and then the unions were forced to amalgamate into larger and larger unions and the weekly services were stretched more thinly and more thinly until eventually churches, especially in rural Ireland, were closed and deconsecrated and unroofed and that gives a very bleak picture and in a lot of rural Ireland, especially the west of Ireland where I come from, it was a particularly bleak um, couple of decades. And come back to that in a moment. But it wasn't like that always, and it wasn't like that everywhere. And John Betjeman's Ireland with Emily poem gives a very, uh, it gives the description of these skeletal churches on the horizon. But Equally, the Church of Ireland managed to cope and transition, and I would argue that its ability to cope and transition arose directly from the changes that were forced on it, and really forced on it because the Church of Ireland fought disestablishment very, very hard and was briefly mentioned earlier on. There was such a strident opposition to disestablishment that although the bishops themselves would have been willing to negotiate, the bishops were held captive by the laity because the laity were such a strong voice that the bishops more or less said, we can negotiate, but if we negotiate, we split the church and we're not going to win this war, so we'll actually win the peace instead. So 
anyway, to go on and back to where Mary was going, and as she said, counterfactual history, what if history is a nonsense way of doing history, but if we can only imagine how much more complicated it would have been for the Church of Ireland in 1921 if it hadn't already been disestablished. Because being already disestablished meant that the Church had an efficient way of uh, governance, an efficient system of financing already in place, and all these arguments about glebe houses and property, they were already a thing in the past. And the church was already established as an island-wide un uh, unit. As I said, most of the opposition to disestablishment had come from the Ulster counties, and numerically the uh, church was much stronger up there, so that it is probable. Now, we don't know, but it you can make the logical conclusion that had the church not been disestablished in 1870 and come into the upheavals of 1921, that a logical consequence would have been that the church in the northeastern counties would have remained part of the United Church of England and Northern Ireland and still established, and that there would have been a southern separate church for the rest of the country. However, to go back to reality now, rather than speculation, where I've sort of wandered into. Before 1870, the church, all issues to do with the church, all issues to do with doctrine, to do with liturgy, to do with administration of the church, were decided not by the church, they were decided in Parliament. And that all changed in 1870, when the control of the church is handed into the hands of the church itself, into the hands of the laity, the clergy and the bishops who debated and decided the direction that the church would take and decided this in the newly formed General Synod. So from then on, all aspects of church policy were shaped by the lived experiences of its members, whose opinions were in turn moulded by the social, political and cultural environment in which they lived. Now, after disestablishment, the church had the ability and the church had the agility to adapt to changing circumstances. But equally important, when thinking in terms of the status of the Church of Ireland in a reconfigured Ireland, is that by 1921, the Church was no longer perceived as a part of the British state. And when I say no longer perceived, I don't just mean no longer perceived by the majority population as being connected with the British Church. I also mean that no longer perceived as such by members of the Church of Ireland itself. The gradual but very, very definite way in which the members of the southern portion of the Church of Ireland psychologically dissociated themselves from the British state, that becomes evident in 1949, when Ireland declares herself a republic and disconnects from the British Commonwealth, and there's a marvellous body of correspondence called the Maud Correspondence in the RCB Library, which I agree with Marie, is an absolute fabulous place to do research with wonderful sources. And the Maud Correspondence in 19 1949 shows that by then you had a generational uh, shift and that those who had been reared and educated in Southern Ireland by that stage they had a clear affinity and wanted an Irish Republic and had a much less connection if any connection at all with the British state. In 19 15, there's a lovely letter in the Church of Ireland Gazette where somebody is writing in and he's saying uh, I'm a member of the Church of Ireland, I've been born and reared in Ireland, and I know nothing about Irish history. And he says, it is a dreadful thing to be reared and educated, to be born and reared in one country, and educated to be a citizen of another. 30 years on, 40 years on, if I do my sums, uh, 
30 years on, uh, at the creation of the Irish Republic, that no longer holds true. The new generation, the rising generation who have come up have been reared and have had the church has had the ability to uh, adapt to changing circumstances because it has the power. Uh, it has the ability to control its own destiny and the people who are growing up in an independent Ireland by the time you get to 1949 are seeing their, themselves and their conception of identity totally different. So therefore, my contention to conclude is that the Church of Ireland faced enormous political and social upheavals, the first of which was disestablishment, and my contention is that the success that the Church uh, of the, the success of the church in the century that followed disestablishment, the Lord moves in mysterious ways, and the success emanated from the autonomy that was forced on it in 1870. Hello? Yeah, right. You can hear me. Right. Okay. Um, I just want to trot down uh, briefly uh, a slight historical byway and mention a few things about the Church of Ireland and Northern Ireland after partition. It's a relatively unexplored area. There's a few PhD theses, a few references in books, but there's, there's been no particularly major study of it. Um, in 1996, a scholar wrote uh, and I quote, in its relations with the government of Northern Ireland, the Church of Ireland had stepped easily into the position a state church would have occupied. And that seems on the surface fairly evident. A couple of examples. Uh, in June 1921, uh, the Archbishop of Armagh, Charles Darcy, said prayers at the first session of the Northern Ireland Parliament. And again, at its state opening by King George V later on in the month. So here is the church symbolically at the centre of the state, much as it was before 1871. And Darcy pops up again, as he so often does, uh, in 1932, uh, where he was involved uh, uh, between, uh, in the connectivity between the Northern State and the Church of Ireland at the 1932 celebrations for the reputed 1500 anniversary of the arrival of our friend St. Patrick in Ireland. In contrast to the Church of Ireland uh, uh, celebratory events in the Irish Free State, uh, in which there was no official or governmental representation, there was a service held in Armagh in June 1932. And this was as much a state occasion in Northern Ireland as the Eucharistic Congress was to be in the Free State some weeks later. Uh, the Northern event was designed to claim a Protestant Patrick for a Protestant people. With a guard of honour from the Royal Irish Rifles, the event was broadcast live on BBC Radio. Governor of Northern Ireland, the Duke of Abercorn, attended, and we believe that Lord Craig Avon, the Prime Minister, was there also, as was at least one other Northern Ireland government minister. Uh, the rest of the attendance was dominated by the elite and the governing elite of Northern Ireland, mainly aristocracy and gentry, who, of course, at that stage were overwhelmingly Anglican. So that was the symbolism, and it backs up Kennedy's point. But when it came to hard policy and practice uh, in the period after partition, the church found itself not entirely singing off the same hymn sheet as the government, and it was indeed frequently at odds with it. 
this is perhaps best illustrated uh, by education matters between 1923 and 1947. Education, in one definition, that is passing on denominational tribalism intact, was central to both the Roman Catholic and Protestant churches in the period. Transferring primary schools into a state system uh, for Protestants was financially advantageous, but the Protestant churches were much concerned about maintaining de facto Protestant control of those schools through a requirement for unadorned Bible exposition during school hours, which Catholics could not accept, of course, and ensuring the teachers would dig with the correct foot. While the Church of Ireland allied with Methodists and Presbyterians in a pan-Protestant united education committee, the battles with and bullying of the state over the Bible issue and the selection and training of teachers were largely led by the dissenting communities in the north. And when these uh, spats threatened to get out of hand, it actually was the Church of Ireland which stepped back from all-out war. So in this very brief exposition, I'll leave you with some questions about the church's role and perception of itself in the northern state. If the church in Northern Ireland still saw itself in some respects as having some of the elements of a state church, was this a manifestation of nostalgically recovering in part what had been lost in 1871? Was it indeed sort of hankering after re-establishment? And how did this square with the narrative that sees the Church of Ireland generally accepting that the break with the state was unequivocally positive for the church? And given that about 70% of the Church of Ireland population in the island was in, in Northern Ireland anyway, um, and the entanglements of church and state in Northern Ireland, especially over education, how did this affect and shape the church's approach to the secular authorities south as well as north. Thank you. It's very important to be heard in this forum. Um, but thank you to all four speakers for setting out um, what is really uh, an ongoing um, an ongoing narrative, uh, really, but, but in terms of the consequences from 1870, um, I want to um, allow some time, we'd say, I suppose 10, we have 10 here for the panel, and, and, and then if there are people who, you know, have comments particularly to add to enrich the discourse um, or, or, or question, that would be great. Um, but just to, to maybe kick it off, because um, the different uh, contributions um, uh, kind of dovetailed with each other, but uh, they, they, they all carry, uh, to me, a kind of a common theme of, of change, of development, as the consequences uh, play out uh, from the, uh, the entrenched opposition to disestablishment to um, an acceptance to an embracing um, of the benefits and, and the, the advantages in the end. Um, and then indeed from politically, from starting off in one political administration to um, then partition and having two administrations for the church to operate in, um, st a state of change is, seems to be the, 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 the general theme. Um, but I'd be just interested in, in broadening it out um, 
maybe beyond Church of Ireland perceptions, and I wonder how disestablishment actually changed the ways the Church of Ireland was perceived by wider society in Ireland. Um, I mean, it, I mean, are, are we at a much better place, uh, do you think, after that 100 years that you talk about? Um, and um, what changes do you think are valid and what maybe perceptions were not so valid? Um, I, I wonder, would any of you like to kick off on how the wider society perceived this establishment? I, I suppose one area would be in, in the history of the Church of Ireland. The history of the established church uh, was not a particularly nice history to be encumbered with. The penal laws um, and martial law and uh, uh, violence uh, were very closely associated with the Church of Ireland and the English state in Ireland. Um, and there was for a long time in the early 20th century a kind of uh, uh, a great caution about mentioning these. Um, uh, and I think, and occasionally still when I'm talking in public as about the history of the Church of Ireland, I'll be asked to apologize uh, for this or for that that the Church of Ireland has done. Uh, that's grown increasingly less frequent because I think what's actually happened as the disestablished Church of Ireland has been able to slough off its difficult historical past and say that was then, that was when, because we were associated with the state. We are now an independent church with a, a very different view of ourselves and our relationships to society. And certainly in the South, the Church of Ireland has been able to create for itself uh, an image of a, a church with a liberal conscience able to speak to the nation. Now, whether it has actually spoken to the nation sufficient or not, uh, I don't know. There's a very interesting chapter uh, by Michael Burroughs and, 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 and the Bishop of Clogher in the recent um, uh, celebration of the 150th anniversary of the church and the recent book edited by Kel Milne, which is looking at the extent to which the Church of Ireland has taken on this role in the South. But I do think the church has miraculously transitioned from being a church associated with the English state to being a separate, independent voice in Irish society. And I think that's quite an achievement. But, but I, I would argue that you can overdo the the idea that the Church of Ireland magically in 1870 um, suddenly became, as it were, unpolitical or apolitical. Um, if you look at, for instance, the the Home Rule Crisis of 1885-86, of and again in 1893, and again in 1912, um, the Church of Ireland vestries are passing virulent motions against Home Rule, and so on and so forth. So the Church, while disestablishment might, in, in one sense, have taken um, uh, 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 the church out, uh, you know, the church out of politics. Politics weren't taken out of the church, and it, it, whether we like it or not, the Church of Ireland is overwhelmingly identified right down to 1922 uh, as essentially unionist. There are outliers, but we wouldn't want to over-egg that pudding. You know, uh, Protestant revolutionaries, for instance, in 1916 are a subspecies of a subspecies of a subspecies of a subspecies. They, they, they just don't register on the Richter scale. And for people to try and resurrect them, for instance, as being somehow representative of the church population at the time is, is simply a misreading of history. And, and even down to 1949, 
Um, you know, I'm old enough now to be a bit of history, walking history myself at this stage. And, and you know, my my memories of my my parents and my grandparents is that, um, you know, they remained closet royalists and loyalists for a long, long time. Um, uh, <clears throat> they operated within the parameters of the state, but that's because they had very little choice. Um, um, the, the, their church was still seen in many respects by the, to, to answer Trevor's point, still by, uh, as a badge of outsiderness. You only have to read um, uh, editorials and articles in Catholic newspapers, uh, like the Catholic Bulletin, for instance, to realise that, you know, um, Church of Ireland and, and ascendancy and unionists were effectively interchangeable terms. And we would we, we, we want to keep, I think, a sense of perspective that that is still the case. Uh, times have radically changed since the, since the late the high watermark of, of, of what I would call national Catholicism in the 1950s um, uh, and change even again with increasing secularization and what, what I would call Protestantization of Irish society um, in, from the 1980s onward. But um, up to then, uh, we are still a, a particular people with seem to have a particular viewpoint, both political uh, as well as uh, denominational and theological. Thank you very much. Mary. I just wonder if there's a, lo a lack of understanding among the Catholic majority about uh, op the opinions of the, of the Church of Ireland Protest Protestants generally. Just one example from my own research, when at the end of the 1920s when the Irish government was facing severe funding crisis for its hospitals and resorted to the setting up of the hospital sweepstakes. Uh, and for decades, Catholic parishes had been running tombolas and bazaars and everything to raise money to fix roofs. And suddenly, and the, the sweepstakes were brought in as the main way of funding the state's hospitals. But obviously, funding charitable charitable works through the proceeds of gambling was a serious stumbling block for Protestants, as a result of which the Adelaide Hospital refused to take any money from the sweep until absolutely forced to do so, I think about 1951. And I think this came as a surprise to the largely Catholic legislators who kind of went, well, what's your problem? So I, I, I just wonder, is there a, a lack of understanding or an ignorance about the views of Protestants among the, the Catholic majority. So I just wonder, do, do, do they, is there a, they live side by side, how much do they actually know about each other? And that's just a, a kind of a, an example of it. And, and that raises an interesting one too, if I can hug the conversation again, that, um, that Protestants in the 1920s were sort of freed, what you might say, from an albatross of, of history in many regards. But they took on the mantle, and it, it rather un, it's rather distasteful in many ways, as a sort of the moral guardians of the nation, that they were more moral, that they, that they didn't gamble, that they didn't drink themselves to death on a Saturday night. I mean, how wrong can you possibly get? <laughs> um, but, but there was this attitude of, 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 morals, of, of almost a rather distasteful moral smugness and superiority. That, 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 and, and this was where Protestants saw themselves, I think, as contributing something to the nation in the sense, of, in, in, in a way that they couldn't politically uh, or, or socially, although they were doing it economically. But certainly morally, I think there was that attitude right through almost to the 1950s. Thank you very much.
in spite of Guinness, um, we'll continue on. <laughs> Go on, here. I don't know, is this working? Yes. Yeah, okay. Um, what I was going to add on from Mary's point is that to what is to ask to what extent was there an actual intermingling at uh, of the two communities because as we all know it was quite possible to be born educated live your life marry rear your children and die and be buried all within your denominational bubble so that to what extent was there and how it took a while it took a long time for an intermingling of uh, of opinions as you say the total um lack of understanding or, or not seeing being completely blindsided as you say by the by the sweepstake issue is just one of a lot of small little uh windows into this um lack of understanding you what, 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 one of the one of the ways one of the ways into this no you can hear it? Yeah. One of the ways into this is through a, a very good book published recently, edited by Ian, which has just been showed to you, um, where there's a study of the way in which employment was procured in the Protestant community uh, in the South. And when I grew up, um, there were certain banks, insurance companies you'd go into as a Protestant. There were certain, I mean, I played cricket for YMCA. You know, I, I never asked about religion of my fellow uh, cricketers but uh, and it's bloody obvious um, and th that's gone and tracing how that has gone is to a certain extent tracing the integration of the Church of Ireland into southern society when I talk to my Protestant nieces and nephews in Dublin they show no trace of what I have to confess was the innate sectarianism of Irish Protestant society that I was reared in in the 1960s uh, it, that, that simply has gone. That's, I think, what we're talking about, the, the shift from a closet loyalty to England, to the crown, uh, to prayers for the king, into being completely integrated, normal members of Southern Irish society. Now, it doesn't apply in the north. It's a, it's a different country, but certainly in the south. But the, but the, but the, sorry, one more thing. The, the, you know, the, the community in the 90s, Protestant community up to the 1980s, 70s, 80s, saw itself in, in its own terms as a valued community. Therefore, it felt itself a community that had to uh, defend itself. And, and it was particularly under threat from, from the Neytemery decree. Um, and and it, it is, as somebody who grew up at the sort of the end bit of it, um, um, ended up being thrown out of a house be, with a girlfriend because I was a Protestant. So I ended up marrying a rector's daughter instead, which was the safe option. But um, uh, actually, actually, cancel that remark. Um, the, the, um, the, the, the the idea was that that you that, that the community was worth worth worth. Uh, 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 Defending, but but that's because we had to defend it against something, and once the Neytemery decree effectively um, just sort of melted away, if you like, um, that sort of sense of defence was no no longer necessary, uh, and in some ways that is you know in a paradoxical way that may well have weakened the the, the sense of camaraderie of of esprit de corps amongst 
um, and Southern Anglicans. They, 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 they don't have that sense of defensiveness anymore. So th th there is some element of, of, of weakening, leaving aside, you know, the onward march of, of secularization. But where now we have um, what used to be quaintly called mixed marriages in, in, in Protestant churches, nobody seems to care anymore, you know. It's down to the fashion. Um, let's get married in a Protestant church, it's more fashionable. Mm -hmm. Well, perhaps it's down to love, but um, <laughs> we won't get stuck on that point. Um, I would like to um, ask if anybody has a, a question that uh, or a comment, because I know that five minutes' time you're all hankering for a cup of coffee or tea or something. Um, so it would be nice to hear. If, you, if a microphone can be brought down to the third row, please. Thank you very much for a very entertaining panel. Um, just a comment, um, certainly as a foreign national coming into Ireland and declaring myself shock horrors as an Anglican, I was seen as somehow an elite member of the community and <laughs> the Protestant church in the town that I lived in was seen as remnants of the ascendancy. And I think up until quite recently this this remnant, this element of identifying the Church of Ireland with the ascendancy is was still very strong. Yeah, I, I, yes, I think in rural areas, I think possibly that there's still a, a remnant of the landowners, larger farmers. My mother's uncle was a terrible snob, and the word in the family was his only friends were either priests or Protestants. Um, so I, th I think maybe in rural areas, it's still maybe the Protestants, Church of Ireland members predominantly are seen as slightly better off economically. I don't maybe I don't want to generalise on that, but um, there may be there may be a bit of a sense of that. Um, I'm I'm just, I think I see a hand up uh, uh, there, uh, towards the third from the back. Thank you. I think um, there was very little attention paid to the effect of uh, the. the death rate in the First World War and to the intermarry decree mm -hmm. uh, in the cause of the decline of the Protestant population. Because I, I think that um, uh, in uh, the Republic, uh, particularly in, in rural areas, uh, the children all w went one way until the intermarry faded away and the Roman Catholic people didn't think that we're Protestants were all going to hell in a handcart. Uh, that, um, uh, that thankfully now it's not all one-way traffic. And the other thing, uh, I grew up in, born in 1942 in rural Ireland, and we were totally integrated with our neighbours in all ways. We certainly had no feeling that uh, we hadn't had any allegiance to a foreign power. <laughs> We were totally integrated. Maybe in, that point the on, 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 the, on the First World War, and, and I mean, it, it affected all communities, really, but particularly in the Church of Ireland? It affected a lot, and especially when you look at rural communities, and you come across comments 
um, I can't remember coming across a comment uh, in a, from a Mayo parish where they said, and you're talking about a Mayo parish, North Mayo, up around the Kalala Cross Malina area, where there wouldn't have been a huge population, and you're talking about four men from this parish have died, and three from the next, and two from the next. So you're talking about wiping out over 50% of the future of the parish. That left a lot of women who didn't, weren't in a position to marry as well. So yes, in especially in rural areas where you didn't have much inward migration, it wiped out the ability to... Um, it left for a lot of unmarried women going into the 40s. If I may follow one thing from that, is when you look at the population statistics and you look at the, the decline in the numbers of Protestants in the 1940s, it looks as if there has been a mass emigration. But that goes back to what I said earlier about the impact of the local government changes. What happened was that there always would have been, if you had six children in a family or four children in a family, three or four went away and one or two stayed at home. But what happened with now after 1921 was that all the children went away and granny and granddad stayed at home. And then you get to the 1940s, so that when you see the population decline in the 1940s, that's the granny and granddad dying and the previous generation has gone. It, so what you're getting is... Often it's an economic decision to move away and that instead of one member of the family staying put, they all go and then the number, if you look at just bald numbers, it looks as if there's a huge decline in the 1940s, but if you look at the age profile of it, it's actually that the rising generation didn't stay at home, as Marie talked about, you, and you can trace that in the lack of baptisms and... You know, Thank you, Marianne. Thank you. Two more. Yes. One thing talking around Ireland to when there are Church of Ireland members in the audience I've learned never to do is to underestimate the trauma of Nate Emery. For gen generations of Church of Ireland, this was a, an extraordinary power. Measuring the impact of that on the population of the Church of Ireland is what historians and economists and sociologists have to do, and that's uh, a much more complicated matter. Uh, it, it's not about anecdote, it's about statistics. And, and we rely here upon the censuses, and, and we're still waiting for the 1926 yes. census to come out. And that will be like gold dust for historians when they're trying to sort out what happened to the population, who left, who went, what age groups, who married whom, how many mixed marriages are there, what's happened to those families later on. That, that, that will be the task of a new generation of historians and it's a really important one because it gets us out of the anecdote and anger and into the factual analysis. I think there's an issue with timing on the, the impact of Nate Hemre. Um, ec economic historians who've looked at the 1911 census, which admittedly has only taken three years after it, um, would suggest that mixed marriages were not all that common in 1911. My sense is, and I think this would be backed up by research by people like Richard O'Leary, is that the true impact of Nate Hemery comes in independent Ireland. But um, Miriam's point is right about baptisms. Again, to go back to those baptismal records, if you go through them, if you look at the names of the children born in particular parishes in, say, the 19-teens and 1920s, you don't find them coming back to have their own children baptized in the same parishes. Um, so they're leaving. I'd also agree with you about the integration in rural Ireland. My family background is Catholic. It's from a farming background. I think those of us in the, from the farming background, Protestant and Catholic farmers, were very integrated. They, 
business was, was very much the same. We went our separate ways on Sundays, but the rest of the week, there was a lot of integration. And I think it's, it's at that, the farming level in particular, there's a lot of crossover between the two communities at, at rural Ireland level. It, it's the amazing capacity of the Irish people to both live together and live apart. I, I think in the, that's, that's an, a good point to conclude. And I think it also includes something that I think as Christians we can say, not just in farming, we've more in common than we have that separates us, but yet quite often we like to uh, focus on the differences. But in that sense, we can at least all join and enjoy a cup of tea or coffee together. Uh, can I just thank the, the panel, uh, Ian, Miriam, Alan and Mary are uh, to be thanked uh, warmly for giving us so much, so much time and research and talent to our afternoon this afternoon. Thank you. another incident when a newly appointed dean here in the Republic, shortly afterwards with the consent of his bishop, mine also by the way, entered a civil partnership soon after that became legal. Caused little stir here, but the newsletter remained agitated about it for months. In recent times, the secularization of Irish society has moved at such a pace that it has outstripped the capacity of the Church of Ireland to keep up with it, whether on the subject of same-sex marriage, which cannot be performed in church, or legislation for abortion. I like the comment of a South Belfast rector recently, um, who said that from a religious point of view, it would be quite impossible to unite um, uh, with the South, not this time because of home rule, but because the South was a heathen society. <laughs> there was a significant controversy in the early 1990s about the strong demand of the Church of Ireland to manage a teaching hospital at Tala that would, among other things, incorporate a number of smaller and older hospitals under church management. There were, of course, material interests to be addressed, never to be underestimated, but the public case for it, into which even some unionist politicians were drawn, mainly rested on the fact that it would be free of certain Catholic ethical restraints related to gynaecology that are still a live issue. In previous ages, there was arguably a good rationale for church involvement when hospitals were more about caring than medicine. The merits of continuing church involvement, an issue still dogging the new National Maternity Hospital, is something I would be agnostic about. It could be argued that a very influential part of Irish society at the present day is engaged in a contemporary form of church disestablishment, particularly focused on church management of schools. All the churches attach a lot of value to this in terms of maintaining their identity, but there is a demand, particularly in metropolitan areas, but not only, for integrated multi-denominational and secular schools to cater for an increasingly multicultural population. The process of divestment is slow and the money for new schools limited. Most schools try to be accommodating of cultural diversity, 
My preference would be for evolutionary development over time rather than imposing a framework from above. Finally, like in the Catholic Church and other churches, leaders of the Church of Ireland played a critical role in the development of the peace process. In politics in this state, religious affiliation or the lack of it is not a significant factor, barrier to electability, but obviously those elected from a minority background represent all their constituents and therefore cannot be primarily a spokesperson for their fellow religionists. A lot of books have been published about the minority's experience, including by authors in this room at the moment, some downbeat and pessimistic, others much more positive. What I feel is good is when organizations mainly associated with one tradition now willingly serve the whole community. When one thinks of the Irish Times or even Trinity College, one can only smile at how pillars of the old establishment have, after a prolonged valley period, reinvented themselves as pillars of a new establishment. Martin, as ever, thank you. And we'll pick up some of the points you were making there um, towards the end. Just to let you know, by the way, I meant to say this at the start. Um, I just like letting people know uh, when we start something, when we're going to finish, because that's just, uh, we're due to finish at six. We will finish at six. Pauline there is going to wave at me to, at, at five to six. So anyone who wants to make a point to any of the panelists, don't be waiting till five to six, okay? Get in early, because we'll be going out uh, on time. So your next speaker is Ivana Bacic, um, Barrister and Reed Professor of Criminal Law, Criminology and Penology at Trinity College Dublin. She's Senator for Dublin University, and uh, she's uh, running again. Uh, her research interests include feminist theory of law and equality law. Her publications include Legal Cases That Changed Ireland. She chaired the Urchthus Volthall 100 Committee Programme in 2018, which was just one of the best things to happen in Leinster House in so long. And she's your next speaker. Will you give her a warm welcome, Ivana Bacic? Thank you for the very kind introduction, Anya. And uh, like Anya, I am uh, neither a historian nor a vicar, um, nor indeed am I Church of Ireland. Uh, and uh, in fact, I'm an atheist. And uh, in answer to the question usually asked by anyone, uh, if you say to anyone who's not Irish uh, that you're an atheist, they immediately say a Catholic or Protestant atheist. So I'm a Catholic atheist. I was brought up Catholic, in other words. Um, uh, so I, I'm really pleased to be here and, and somewhat in awe of, uh, of, the, uh, of the incredible um, speakers and presentations before. I, uh, my good friend Susan Hood from school is here and Susan and I were I was saying to Susan earlier, for me it's like being back in history class with the wonderful Anne O'Connor, uh, learning so much and, uh, and renewing so much knowledge. Um, and it's a, an appropriate setting since the chairs here are rather like pews in a church uh, and this feels a little like a pulpit but anyway um, I was struck by three particular comments uh, or three particular insights earlier um, that I want to just make reference to before I speak about the challenges uh, 
um, the challenges since 1969, and perhaps to pick up on some of what Martin has said as well. Uh, the, uh, first of all, the, the point made by, the, by Archbishop Jackson that the church, that, sorry, disestablishment uh, of the Church of Ireland is a work in progress. I thought that was an interesting idea because I want to talk about that idea of established and establishment uh, in my own paper now. Uh, secondly, that the Church of Ireland has been shaped by its minority status. I think that came out very strongly from the uh, from all of the um, the discussions. And thirdly, then that uh, the church is. Uh, uh, it was, was founded, or the origins of the church lay not with Henry VIII, as many of us might have thought, but with St. Patrick, uh, the Irish, the, uh, giving it a much more Irish uh, um, identity. Uh, and that's probably just as well. I don't know if any of you had the pleasure of reading the sneak preview of Hillary, of the first chapter of Hillary Mantle's new book, the third in the trilogy, the Wolf Hall trilogy about uh, Thomas uh, uh, Cromwell, uh, where it starts with Anne Boleyn's beheading. So it's not a particularly pleasant, uh, it's a brilliant read a brilliant read but uh, not a particularly pleasant um, um, vision uh, and it brings us back to, to Henry VIII of course. Um, so I wanted to discuss this issue, um, the issue of the challenges since 1969 and in particular to focus on the idea of secularisation and this concept um, Martin spoke about, the increasing secularisation of Ireland uh, over the most recent decades and what that has meant for the Church of Ireland and I should say that I'm much more used to speaking about church-state relations and separation of church state in the context of a very different of discussion about, about the, ma the majority church, the dominant church, uh, the, that is the Roman Catholic Church, of course, and the church which in, has been, in my, and I have argued before in all but name, the established church of this jurisdiction. And uh, for anyone who believes, as I do, in the true Republican principle of separation of church and state, it's been very regrettable, and I've written very critically, about the way in which Catholic Church uh, teaching has been so embedded in our laws, notably in our constitution, in our legal frameworks, in our structures of power, and also how church authority has had so much influence and so much power, uh, particularly in our education, health, and welfare systems. And uh, as a Republican, uh, I would, in, in, in uh, that particular sense, um, I, I would adhere to the principles expressed by J. John F. Kennedy in the famous speech he gave in Houston, Texas in 1960, where he spoke of the need, uh, uh, his belief in an America where no Catholic prelate, prelate would tell the president, should he be Catholic, how to act, and his belief in a president whose fulfillment of his presidential oath is not limited or conditioned by any religious oath, ritual, or obligation. So it's a clearly secularist vision, but it's a vision that is not just important uh, for those who are of no faith. Also, it is of critical importance for those of minority religions, particularly in a jurisdiction like ours, where there is a dominant church still adhered to or identified with by 78% of the population, albeit that the numbers have decreased, and albeit that, as has been said, the uh, number of those identifying as of no religion in the last census increased dramatically to, uh, four, to over 450,000. Uh, so this is the principle of separation of church and state is vital to protect those of minority religions, to ensure that people are free to practice their religion and to ensure that laws are genuinely made without uh, influence, without undue influence from particular religions. So I've written and spoken elsewhere, as I've said, on, on the way in which Catholic church teaching has been, un, in, in my view, unduly influential in the wording of our constitution. Indeed, I've had some uh, disagreements with uh, 
with uh, with others on the, on the nature of this. But I think if one looks at the constitutional text today, one sees that while the reference to the special position of the Catholic Church was, of course, removed in 1972 by referendum, uh, just after, in fact, the centenary of disestablishment of the Church of Ireland, the strong influence of Catholic and and also of Christian teaching is still very clearly evident in the text of our constitution, the preamble of which, of course, begins in the name of the Most Holy Trinity. Uh, not only in the preamble, but also in the uh, requirement that the president, every member of the Council of State, and all judges are required to take an oath beginning in the presence of Almighty God, where the definition of family is confined to the marital family, the family based on marriage, albeit since 2015 this includes same-sex marriage, uh, where mothers are still described in our constitution, mothers specifically as having duties within the home, and where uh, we still have a denominational religious message at six every evening in the in RT. No, it's not my phone. I had that momentary panic. Um, so so in, in this context, we can see a, a, a church teaching embedded in, in, uh, in legal structures. But not only that, and one may say, well, this is just the text of the Constitution. But not only is, do we see this frame still in the text of the Constitution, but if one looks at the contemporary context of education, of healthcare, of, well, of welfare, one sees that due to the history of the development of uh, not just the Catholic Church, but also the uh, Church of Ireland and other churches in this jurisdiction, we see uh, continued embedding of, uh, of religion uh, to the exclusion of the sort of pluralist uh, uh, developments that one will have, that have been seen elsewhere. So very briefly, just to sketch in, on education, the continuing power of the churches in Irish society is nowhere more readily observed than in the basic structures of our education system, particularly primary education system. And it's well known that the national school system was originally founded in the early 19th century in 1831, was intended to be a multi-denominational system, but this was opposed by the churches. The system became denominational and uh, each organised religion was given the freedom to establish and manage primary schools under their own patronage. And we see this enshrined not only in Article 42, of the Constitution, but in the more recent statutory reform in the Education Act of 1998, which preserves the system of patronage so that schools are still obliged to uphold the religious ethos of their patron, in most cases the local bishop, be it Catholic or Church of Ireland. The statistics are well known. We have over 3,200 national schools in Ireland, uh, the vast majority of which, over 90% are Catholic, but 95% are denominational. Now, the biggest growing group of schools, national schools, uh, are those under the Educate Together multi-denominational umbrella. There are now nine, just over 90 primary schools, and I should say that I, I was one of the uh, founders of one of those schools, the first school to be uh, created under a transfer of patronage arrangement from the Catholic Church. And I would disagree with Martin's uh, view that pay transfer of patronage is a, is a development that should happen organically or slowly. From my own experience, the experience of others, it's been a very, very difficult process to uh, to carry out uh, without enormous amount of political will and indeed will from within uh, religious uh, bodies also and yet it's vitally important parents are voting with our feet uh, to move schools out of religious control and into multi-denominational uh, into multi-denominational ethos uh, but we still have this this um, rather archaic system where we have a patron uh, body with immense power generally derived from religion and indeed educate together famously when they first set up uh, letters to them as patron used to be headed dear bishop 
because that was the template and that was the, uh, the, the, the model. In healthcare, similarly, and Martin has spoken a little about that in the context of Tala Hospital, uh, anyone reading Peter Boylan's excellent book will have seen the uh, issues around the battle of the ownership of Hollis Street and Vatican control. I won't go into that given time constraints. On welfare too, on welfare provision too, Maura Adset has written that the Catholic Church was effectively operating as a shadow welfare state for the early decades of uh, after independence of this state. That has, of course, gradually changed, and, and the change has been accelerated in recent decades, particularly with disclosures around uh, abuse in uh, industrial schools and religious-run institutions. But one, again, when one looks at the history of the development of those schools and institutions, one sees a history where not only were, um, were uh, uh, Catholic authorities um, running schools and operating institutions where the state should have, been step, should have stepped in, but so too were the Protestant churches. In 1898, for example, there were 71 reform and industrial schools in Ireland, 17 for Catholic boys, 44 for Catholic girls, four for Protestant boys and five for Protestant girls. There was one mixed industrial school, but it was mixed gender, not mixed religion. And anyone who has a look at the history, and there's some excellent work been done on this by, among others, Owen O'Sullivan in Trinity, some excellent work on the history of the development of the industrial and reform school system in Ireland. One sees, again, uh, religious control embedded in, in, in this history. So I think, uh, I think just to conclude, because I'm conscious of time, uh, to conclude, just to say that We've seen in the history of the development of the Irish state, notably in the development of our healthcare, our education, our welfare institutions, we've seen, uh, we've seen continued and ongoing control by, uh, particularly by the dominant church, but often also uh, supported by minority churches, which too seek to, uh, which too seek to embed their own control. And I'm just struck again, returning to that point of the identity of the Church of Ireland as having been shaped by its, its place as a minority religion. One can understand that in the context of minority religions, the need to defend a position, the need to assert oneself, uh, and in the context of a, sea of, a, of a Church of Ireland tradition that has all that has traditionally in this jurisdiction jurisdiction been seen as more liberal in terms of ordination of women, in terms of, of course, married clergy, uh, and in terms of positions on, uh, for example, LGBT rights and women's rights. But I do agree with Martin. I think in recent years, particularly, as we've seen a dramatic acceleration in liberalization and secularization of public opinion here, we've seen that uh, public opinion has outstripped not only Catholic Church teaching, but also Church of Ireland teaching. And the Church of Ireland position, as expressed in 2018, in the run-up to the referendum on the repeal of the Eighth Amendment was notably uh, more, much more conservative than the position adopted by the people and indeed the position we adopted ultimately in the legislation on abortion. So that is just one example, I think, of where we have seen a dramatic outpacing in terms of social change and public opinion. And I think that uh, you know, one would conclude by saying that we need to move beyond a position where religious, where churches be it a dominant church or indeed dominant church and some minority churches, continue to have such a strong role in the governance of, our, of institutions that should be state-run. We need to move to a genu genuinely secularist and pluralist vision of a republic. Uh, I think there's been some positive signs towards that. The Taoiseach last year, the, then, the current Taoiseach still, convened a meeting of all faith groups, including the humanists, as a sort of forum. I think that's a sort of a good model to ensure that there's dialogue, but not undue influence. The simple Swedish phrase sums it up. In school you teach, in church you preach, and you shouldn't confuse the two. Gurmagh.
Ivana, thank you so much. It's interesting, uh, during the tea break, there was a couple of us talking and we were all from uh, what, at the time that we got married, would have been called mixed marriages. And, you know, people wouldn't understand that in the religious sense now that it was familiar to us, uh, certainly was familiar to us and our families at the time, I can tell you. Anyhow, but that's uh, another story. Your next speaker is Andrew Pierce. He's the head of the discipline of religious studies in TCD's School of Religion. He's an assistant professor in ecumenics and a former head of the Irish School of Ecumenics. He has lectured in church history and theology at the Church of Ireland Theological Council, been a uh, college in the late 90s. He's been a member of the House of Bishops Advisory Commission on Doctrine. More recently, he's acted as theological advisor to the General Synod Select Committee on Human Sexuality in the Context of Christian Belief, which sounds incredibly impressive, Andrew, I have to say. And he also knows all about Ivana Bacic's disreputable childhood. Uh, because, <coughs> But he can tell you more about Sunday evenings and what they got up to. Um, Andrew, away you go. Thank you very much. Yeah, that's rather frightening. Um, <coughs> Our proper brief has to do with health education and secularization. And I suppose the question I want to bring into play is on the basis of what precisely does a church make any contribution on such important issues as these? And therefore, I want to focus my remarks on the discipline of theology. Martin has mentioned the book edited by Father Michael Hurley at the time of disestablishment's centenary. Um, and Michael began his preface with apologies for topics left untreated in the volume, the very first of which was theology. I quote, while the outstanding work in our own day of such individual scholars as Bishop McAdoo and the Hansen brothers has already achieved recognition, the theological stance of the Church of Ireland in general still needs to be rescued from the misinterpretations which continue to embarrass its reputation at home and abroad, and not least in Anglican circles." Unquote. It was a very nice gift from Michael to give to the Church of Ireland. Fifty years later, aside from adding the Ford brothers and subtracting the Divinity School, one might reasonably wonder if much of substance has in fact changed since Hurley and his uh, colleagues worked on their disestablishment project in 1969. So why focus on, on theology? I think there are two basic reasons. The first is that the Irish churches are still struggling, or at least they should be struggling, or they are and they haven't noticed, to overcome the privatization and marginalization of their intellectual lives during much of the 20th century. This privatization and marginalization of religious scholarship as a matter of public importance has had a, a negative impact in various places. The 1908 Universities Act ensured that the state would not provide financial support for the teaching of theology in Irish universities. Churches were free to make available such support, but critical, self-critical religious scholarship was not seen as a desirable public good. Theology or divinity, whatever it's called, having lost its medieval role as queen of the sciences, have nevertheless retained a certain role, albeit marginal, in modern universities across Europe. Its rationale for being in a university was that 
very similar to what was advanced for other humanities subjects. It was seen as helping to translate culturally valuable truth claims from the past into the present and to preserve them for the future. In case that sounds like setting the bar a little bit low, uh, the Royal Commission that had allowed English to be taught in the universities had suggested that it would be suitable because it provided a subject suitable for women and third-class men, the kind of men who go on to become teachers. So, <laughs> so that's always happy to remember in front of one's English colleagues. Now, this, this unhappy assumption uh, well, the Irish solution, if you like, to, to the Irish problem in the field of university education in the late 19th century was to reduce the study of theology almost exclusively to a concern with preparing men for ordination in churches, and the churches would then pick up the tab. Now, that unhappy assumption about the place of theology in Irish churches, sorry, I'm, I'm doing things to you there. Don't show this warning again. No, do not. Go away. Sorry, that's it. Anyway, the, um, that, 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 that remained intact for almost a century before a new Irish Universities Act in 1997 uh, removed that particularly peculiar cordon sanitaire from around the discipline of theology. An interdenominational group of theologians met with Irish government officials in the quest for capacity building funding. And with the support of the Ahern and Cowan governments, this funding made its appearance in the year 2008. That's important. Recent studies by the Pew Institute suggest that the public role of religion aside from in the United States of America, thank God, and France, will increase significantly in the coming decades, with hyphenated interreligious identities likely to proliferate. Given the grace and ease with which our species tends to negotiate social, cultural, and religious otherness, the need for critical, self-critical scholarship to resource such developments in religious identity is becoming a pressing social need and public good. Few things, said Professor Morris Wiles, are as dangerous as uncritical religion. And it was that very point that the state was in the process of acknowledging when we all ran out of money. Now, that is the first reason to be concerned, I think, with, with, with theology. It has a broader public resonance addressed very often in a university context, as well as a church-specific relevance. It's not, of course, the answer to everything, but it can help to create, sustain creatively the liminality and the friction between faith and reason, church and university, theory and practice, religious engagement, and academic reflection. Our Irish churches have tended to be rather brilliant on organization and structure and discipline, and possibly less grippingly attached to the realm of ideas. Uh, we're very good at organizing. If something can't get out of the way, we will set up a committee and work on it. Now, the second reason is that without some kind of justification by way of some kind of public theology, it is hard to know what business the churches actually have in the public square. And this is coming to some of the issues raised by Ivana. Part of the imaginary of establishment is the public presence and privilege of certain religions. And no matter how 
disestablished we are supposed to be, we're supposed to have 150 years under our belt, we remain creatures of habit, and sometimes our pious habits require a prophetic knee in the solar plexus. At the start of his theology of church, the reformed theologian Jürgen Moltmann notes the dangers of what he sees as an uncritically or passively received understanding of church. He says, if theology were to lose its freedom to criticize, it would turn into the ideology of the church in its existing form. That's quite a brilliant remark, and it's what the Anglican Communion globally has, has decided to do by deciding that it is the way it's organized. But that's another story. Now, either we have a theology that explains credibly and coherently who we think we are and why, and one that is able to show how our account of ourselves sustains a common life, or we acknowledge that we are simply gathered together because of elective affinities or a shared genetic condition in order to do our funny little things in our funny little ways. To be theological and critical is not necessarily to restrict ourselves to doctrinal matters. Anglican theologians tend to assume that church ministry and sacraments exhausts the doctrinal palate. But one of the significant gaps in Irish theology to date has been its comparative lack of contextual theology. And that point was highlighted in the circumstances surrounding the recent ending of undergraduate studies in theology in QUB. The importance of that issue is borne out by the famous study, The Social Sources of Denominationalism by H. Richard Niebuhr, published because there is nothing new under the sun back in 1929. Looking at denominational life in the contemporary United States, Niebuhr noted that all the denominations accounted for themselves in suspiciously denominational and doctrinal terms. Catholics referenced the Pope, Presbyterians mentioned covenant and election, Methodists spoke of grace. But there were large and very social elephants in the room, namely ethnicity and class, which no one seemed at all eager to claim under the uh, banner of doctrinal identity. Niebuhr's work gave us the expression non-doctrinal factors to refer to aspects of religious identity that, although not explicitly doctrinal, were nevertheless theologically potent. Denominationalism, as Niebuhr saw matters, was not a successful way of recognizing internal Christian pluralism. Uh, it was, in fact, a matter of social self-interest in denial. And not surprisingly, he calls denominationalism the moral failure of Christianity. So any worthwhile Irish contextual theology needs to attend closely to how non-doctrinal factors, which is an interpenetrating mesh of ethnicity, class, culture, nationality, gender, and much else besides, how these things regularly pretend to doctrinal status. And they can bite. In her illuminating account of ecumenical relations in Northern Ireland, Maria Power surveyed a shift that she detected, according to her book's title, from ecumenism to community relations. Part of her argument is that the churches were theologically ill-prepared for the ecumenical revolution of the 1960s. Serious ecumenical engagement on the part of the Catholic Church coincided with the rise of the civil rights movement. Issues that had been unquestioned and identity-defining were now seen as a suitable subject for dialogue with those others against whom our identity had been defined. 
the effect was that mutual ecumenical encounters over supposedly doctrinal matters proved capable of bringing non-doctrinal inter-community boundary markers to white heat with dangerous consequences. To reduce tension, the churches effectively rebranded themselves as communities and sought to better, foster better community relations rather than remain within the more fraught territory of dialogue where boundaries may sometimes change. Is community a satisfactory synonym for church? Probably, and importantly, not. Moreover, in the context of a divided society, to apply the term community to different smaller groupings eclipses the wider community to which these communities belong, the community which is precisely most in need of affirmation. And so to conclude, in Ireland, there remains a significant question mark over the social and ecclesial role of theology. For churches to contribute with integrity to social and political issues, it's imperative that their life of scholarship, with which all religious traditions claim some affinity, is rooted in the wider contesting of truth and truthfulness in society. Thank you. Andrew, thank you so much for that. And if you wouldn't mind coming up and joining us here. Oh, grand, 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 sorry. So, um, yes, we've heard a lot about um, education uh, at different points from our different speakers. And we're going to hear more now from your next speaker, who's uh, the Reverend Professor Anne Lodge. She's the director of the Church of Ireland Centre in the DCU Institute of Education. And before that, Professor Lodge was principal of the Church of Ireland College of Education. Between 2012 and 2016, she played a key role in the complex tasks involved in the incorporation of the college into a university uh, setting. And Anne is going to talk about the role being chain, uh, played by the Church of Ireland in the field of education and also about her thoughts on the way forward. Anne. Anya, thank you very much. And can I just say a warm thank you to the people who invited me in here and so many of you I've had the chance to speak to already this afternoon. It's a real pleasure to be here with you. I'm also very, very conscious I am the last person that you're going to have to listen to speaking for any length of time. So I thought, knowing I was on the last panel, let's put some visuals up, because if nothing else, they'll keep me awake. They may help to keep you awake over the next 10 minutes or so, but on top of which, after Martin frightened us by telling us about keeping clergy male to keep clergy sexless, I think they'll distract from me in case I <laughs> fail in that regard. So. I'm going to focus on education because all I know about health is from being a patient, so I think education will stick with that one. Now, let's start with, I read the brief, by the way, of what we were supposed to do, which was to look at us from 1969 right through to the present day and thinking about our challenges going forward. And the first thing that struck me was disestablishment, infinity and beyond, and I thought maybe not. Let's think about where we were in 1969. We had an awful lot, and you can see it up there on the left-hand side of the picture, of very old, pretty, tiny little schools lots and lots of one and two teacher schools. 50 years on, we've moved on somewhat, 
we still have the highest proportion of small schools in every sector in the primary sector in Ireland. Nearly 80% of all Church of Ireland schools have four class teachers or less. So we have a lot of small schools. But we also have newer buildings that are more fit for purpose for the modern curriculum. But I want you to hold a number in your head. This is a challenge at this hour of the day. Just 5% of the entire primary sector is made up of not just Church of Ireland schools, but also the Presbyterian, the Methodist, and the Society of Friends schools. So keep that 5% in your head. The next thing we're going to think about very, very briefly is the post-primary schools. Way back in 1969, we had a good number of small, rather old, rather venerable boarding schools in the main all of them fee-paying and recent arrangements having been made to ensure that with the move towards a free scheme system that the Church of Ireland and the other Protestants would not be disadvantaged. So the Protestant block grant was invented to ensure that Protestant children could continue to go to Protestant schools and be helped in the paying of fees so they wouldn't be disadvantaged from not going into the free scheme. We've moved on a reasonable amount with the post-primary sector in the meantime. In the 1970s, we developed comprehensive schools, and through then into the last 10 years, when a good number of the fee-paying schools went into the free scheme system, and miracle of miracles, we even got a brand new Anglican second-level school out in Greystones. An extraordinary thing to happen in this day and age. Now, there was much talk earlier about the way in which people could live totally separate lives. Now, I think it was Mary made the point about how farming communities were always mixed. And I think that for all of us who come from rural areas, we're very well aware of farmers working together because people have to in rural areas. But even with that, it was possible to go to a Church of Ireland primary school, a Church of Ireland post-primary school, Protestant dances, join all sorts of nice Protestant clubs in your adulthood, and never really mix in a deep, deep way with, as they call them in Northern Ireland, the other side. Now, we have moved on very significantly from that, and Nate Temeray has been mentioned several times this afternoon. I think one of the biggest reasons for the breaking down of the walls of those, of those separate spheres was the moving away from the norm of Nate Ray. And I'll just digress briefly to give you a story about one of my students. I teach my little cohort every year about the ethos of Protestant schools, understanding Protestant community, and so on. And I always tell them, I put the words ne temere on the board and say, does anybody know what that means? And invariably, they look blank. One year, one of them said, is that in Latin? And I thought, how our education system has failed. But eventually, when I did explain to them, including telling them stories about the very negative impact ne temere had and the very sad impact it had on many people's lives, one of them had this moment of revelation and she said, that's why my granny hates my boyfriend. It's because he's a Catholic. So she had this insight of suddenly understanding how things had changed even within her own family. But what intrigued me was nobody had talked about it. So those walls in the separate spheres have broken down. But we have tended not to talk about them. And of course, typical Irish solution to an Irish problem, let's just sweep it under the carpet and hope it will all go away. But there's another element to these separate spheres as well, and this is actually the reason I've got Hogwarts, for anyone who doesn't recognize it up there along with Dumbledore, is 
The schools were quite segregated back in 1969, quite separate. But there was a very big difference between what happened with Catholic schools and what happened with the Church of Ireland, Presbyterian, Methodist Society, Friends and Jewish schools because the minorities were protected by the Constitution. Ivana mentioned this. But while these separate institutions allowed for the protection of minorities, what it also enabled was the majority church and politicians, cultural commentators, etc., to keep this false idea of pure Irish citizenry also being Roman Catholic. Because you could put everybody who was other or different into these minority schools. So the result is that our schools for a long period of time were kind of acting like sponges to soak up that difference, that otherness, in a way that was not seen in the majority school system. Now, of course, as Ivana said as well, we have changed enormously in the last 50 years, and in the last 20 years in particular, hugely intercultural, vast, vast number of different nationalities here, many different religions, huge growth in the number of those who call themselves, you know, whether it's humanists, whether it's atheists, whether it's people of personal belief. Nonetheless, we're actually significantly more religious than most other Western European countries. So we're on a slightly different trajectory to our neighbours. And we have to bear in mind that because our schools were for a long time that sponge, they have developed a whole sense of serving a diverse community. And I just want to mention very, very briefly, over the last decade, myself and the recently deceased David Tui, my good friend and colleague, did a couple of different pieces of work where we gathered data from Church of Ireland primary schools. So we gathered data in 2011 and again in 2016. And what it told us was our schools continue to serve very, very diverse populations. And one of the things that attracts many of the parents who are not Church of Ireland into our Church of Ireland schools for their children is this idea of the faith light environment. And I don't mean that as an insult to our schools. What I mean is that by doing faith formation specifically within the home, within the parish, and leaving a more generic engagement with Christian ideas, with some amounts of worship and assembly and some connection with parish, you have an experience of a Christian life for your children without any sense of it being imposed on people. And for many parents who are not church-affiliated themselves, that can actually be quite an attractive thing. And certainly the data that David and I collected demonstrated that that was one of the attractions for people of our schools. And now let's get into thinking about this notion of the ethos or the ethia of a school. Now, I promise I'm not going to do a Boris Johnson on it and start quoting the Iliad, but that word ethia is an ancient Greek term, and it actually does come from the Iliad, but no Boris, no quoting. And it's all about this notion of there being a place that people can share that is a place of comfort and a place of community where people have things in common and shared beliefs, shared experiences, where they can learn character and ethics and values. So this is what happens within a school. But far be it from the idea that a church or a bishop who's a patron of a school sets this ethos in stone, we need to understand that the people who are in that community create that ethos day by day. 
So the ethos is a living thing. And if we think about our schools as being very welcoming of diversity over a very long period of time, then invariably at their best, the ethos that they have is one that reflects Anglican values, actually. It is one that, and I know uh, Bishop Kenneth Kieran is here, so he will forgive me for quoting him, has that Anglican range of voices permitted and celebrated within it. But it's also a place where dissenting voices are allowed. That's normal, where flat democracy is a part of the culture. And that actually allows for, at its best, a greater acceptance engagement with diversity. Now, I just want to think about the description of the work of this panel, because I was a little bit surprised to be told that we were to focus on illuminating the relative roles of church and state and how they relate to one another. And I was a bit surprised about the briefing as well, talking about the denominational nature of 95% of the schools, because I want you to remember those numbers I gave you earlier. 5% of all primary schools are ours. 4.5% of all post-primary schools are ours. I'm not entirely sure how we can engage with the state around denominational and faith schooling. And I'm also not sure where the Muslims and the Jewish community fit in in that, because they too have schools. And I'm just wondering how we as the Church of Ireland might be asked to think about our role within a post-secular space where there are many voices, many voices that have an equal right to be heard. And perhaps because our minority sector was so long expected to be that sponge that soaked everything up, we've sort of got used to carrying the can for change. Now, again, back to Martin earlier, he talked about this table, and this is a close-up picture of the plaque on that table, currently on display in Christchurch for all of you, please go and look at it, um, basically telling the bishops from, on behalf of the Church of Ireland, don't let us down again. Now, let me digress a moment more. When I was a little girl, my father, a teacher, would get us up every morning to do what he called morning horrors, which were a mental arithmetic and spelling. And his favorite thing in the world was to make us spell really long words. And his very favorite word, 28 letters long, was anti-disestablishmentarianism. <laughs> and last Sunday, I said to my father, who I was visiting down the country, and I said, you'll never guess what, Joe. I finally found a use for that word, anti-disestablishmentarianism, because what I think this plaque represents at the time that it was put on that table was the very anti-disestablishment feeling that was embedded, understandably, within the Church of Ireland. But I wonder at times, have we completely let that go? I mean, why would there be an expectation put to this panel that we think about the relation, illuminating the relations between church and state? Because we were disestablished 150 years ago, as Vanna quite correctly said, there is another church that's much more in that established position now. And I think just to finish on this, we are a minority sector with a very distinct character to our schools. And part of that distinct character at its best is the welcoming of diversity and the range of voices and inclusion. Let us recognize that unique character. Let's encourage it to be its best. But let's not be, maybe not fooled, but let's not find ourselves pushed into the role of fixing the system. Because, blessedly, we are not the establishment. And I suggest we're actually something a whole lot better. 
We're a diverse, and I would have to say interesting minority. We're small, but we're a very significant part of this society, and long may we continue to be so. Thank you all very much. And thank you. That was fascinating. Um, and not just the graphics, but, but a lot of what you had to say. I'm conscious time is very short, so anyone who wants, we've got about 15 minutes left. Anyone who wants to ask a question of the panel, just get your hands in the air fairly fast. And yes, Trevor there. Uh, can we get a microphone to Trevor? And also, sorry, I've forgotten. So we're going to go here and here. And actually what I'll do is I'll take both your questions together and then we'll go straight to the panel with those. Trevor. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I don't want to be hugging, but I'm, I'm asking this on behalf of a child that I've been asked to baptise next week. And uh, probably somebody who won't be spelling anti-establishmentarianism for a long time. But that being said, in the last 150 years, what will be relevant to that child will be, as it's coincidental, I'm not saying the Church of Ireland is responsible for this now, but the, the use of energy has exceeded all predictions from 1870. And in the next 150 years, we've got to get those levels of consumption back to they, what they were in 1870. Um, so the challenge of this, of this establishment was huge, but the start challenge now, I'm just wondering, is there anything we can learn from that uh, essential shock to the establishment in 1870 that might inform us and save that child's future in the next 150 years? Okay. And if we just go across the way, and I'll, I'll just try and get as many points in. Hi, uh, Brendan Toomey. Um, the Church of Ireland is an all-Ireland uh, institution. And while the four speakers were fantastic and raised all sorts of issues, to, to, to borrow a phrase, our separated brethren didn't get mentioned uh, too much. And I just wonder if the four panelists have some comment on the Church of Ireland uh, on their issues vis-a-vis -vis the North. Well, actually, that, that was the thing that it occurred to me listening to all four of you. And again, looking forward, and I'll come to the longer, if, if you like, the more pressing uh, agenda. But looking forward, there was a lot of talk of a new Ireland. And again, we'll be dealing with education, we'll be dealing with hospitals, we'll be dealing with political setups. So I, I really would like to hear, because, okay, we, we've disestablished this far, and you know, even in terms of schools, it can, there can be tensions from time to time. There's a lot more change coming. So I'd like your thoughts on all of that. Maybe we'd start with you, Anne, and some of well, can I just say briefly to Trevor, I think one of the things we learn from anything like disestablishment is sometimes you need top-down tough action. And I think we have to expect our, um, our politicians, when they get their act together, to go and do that because ground up doesn't always work as effectively as it should. But that being said, more Greta Thunberg, please. We need more of those young voices. The second thing I'd say on Northern Ireland, you're spot on. The only reason I didn't speak about it is I don't have the expertise in the area in the same way that I do about the Republic. However, I do certainly teach my students about comparing the two systems. And one of the things that's really striking when you look at the numbers and the breakdown of the kinds of pupils in the different types of schools in Northern Ireland at primary level, the greatest diversity is not to be found in the integrated schools. The greatest diversity of all faiths and none is actually to be found in what are essentially the state schools, but were de facto seen as the Protestant schools. So that same kind of sponge soakage 
is to be found there as well. And that, that's because I'm not an expert, I can't go into it further. But you're absolutely spot on in that. We do need to be thinking much more broadly about this. Andrew? Yeah, thanks. Trevor, I think probably you're the best person to answer the first question that, that, that you asked. Um, uh, I mean, I think for many people, the, the, the problem and the challenge of, of climate justice, climate change, and the challenge that comes in a, a galloping range of you know, zero growth as an idea which seems to shock the socks off people who otherwise think that it's all about um, wear, wearing earth tones. Um, that that we, 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 are, we are in for an almighty shock. And that is the only thing that can be addressed at multiple levels. And even some of the more successful initiatives organized by churches, the sort of eco-congregation has a certain premise, has a certain uh, cachet, is still quite a small impact in terms of the enormity that we're getting into as a moral community on that. Uh, apropos the, the question of, of the North, I'm going to come back to that because I had a zinger and I've forgotten it. <laughs> that feeling of having a zinger, I know it well, Andrew. Um, Trevor, uh, lovely to see you in, uh, in a different setting to, than uh, the Oireachtas. Uh, just briefly on, uh, on the huge challenge of, of climate change, of the climate emergency, I think the best an, or a good analogy perhaps is the abolition of slavery and the enormous shift that that took in in economic and social systems at, at, and obviously a hugely progressive and important shift that took an immense political drive and i think we're going to need that level of drive not just here in ireland but obviously internationally as well so i mean i think one one positive that i took from the last general election there wasn't much positive for a labor person in that last election but one positive was that climate change wasn't a huge issue indoors but i think because every political party had recognized the importance of it and had made strong commitments on it and i think uh, wh whoever the new government is will have to be held to that on briefly on northern ireland i did have more to say on that and thank you for asking the question i think there was a long, for a long time, a view uh, held among uh, many in the Protestant community or the Unionist community in Northern Ireland, not conflating the two, but just to, to say that this jurisdiction was too Catholic dominated because the Catholic Church was effectively an establishment church here. I think that has really shifted with the increased secularisation in in this jurisdiction to a point where we're seeing Irish the society here as much more liberal in terms of a, a range of different social issues, marriage equality, abortion being two obvious examples, and indeed Catholic and Protestant churches rather united in Northern Ireland now in their opposition to the changes that were brought about by the British government uh, in the North on marriage equality and abortion. So it's an ironic shift. Yeah, I suppose the general political problem, and it applies to environmental issues and indeed every other one, um, including um, post-disestablishment era and adjusting to a new state, um, is managing and leading change. And that's not, it, it, it's never easy for politicians uh, to do that. Very often external shocks or circumstances uh, uh, come, to your, come to your assistance. Um, I'm not sure that people will easily reconcile themselves to going back to the living standards of 1870, but maybe that wasn't quite what you were saying. But um, uh, how you maintain your, your living standards um, uh, roughly where they are or even further forward um, uh, while having the sort of uh, level of um, energy consumption or whatever, I mean, that, 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 that would be difficult. Um, 
I must say I thought I did reference the North quite a bit in what I was saying. Um, now, yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, the position of North and South has changed a lot in the last 40 years. I mean, 40 years ago, um, you know, Protestants in the North would have looked down a bit on the South as, you know, the backward priest-ridden, etc., etc., etc. Um, whereas in the recent times, uh, in many respects, not all, but many respects, um, you know, the North would be seen as more conservative. But I think one of the points I was trying to make when I was, uh, was speaking is that, um, uh, you know, the reality of disestablishment is much less in the North. Uh, than it is in the South, because broadly speaking, Church of Ireland, Anglican Communion, Hillsborough and all the rest of it, uh, you know, uh, church and state, and state as much in the British sense as in the Northern Irish, because uh, Northern Ireland isn't a state anyway, but, um, uh, you know, the, 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 the alignment which I suspect most Church of Ireland people are relatively uh, comfortable with. And one of the fallacies we make here um, is when, say, talking about a possible United Ireland, well, um, you know, we might give you A, B, and C, things that they already have. So, I mean, that's no particular incentive to change. There's no incentive to, uh, to change at all. I'll finish with one, one point, as I think um, uh, there is... Uh, a member of the Episcopal bench in this room that had some responsibility for it. There's a wonderful prayer in the 2004 um, Church of Ireland prayer book. Uh, it's part of the litany, um, which is, um, uh, God bless uh, the European Union and may it um, uh, grow in unity and, you know, rectification. And I remember um, mentioning it um, uh, to the Archbishop's colleague in Armagh, and he just said to me, I don't think that prayer is much used here. <laughs> We've just a couple of minutes left, and I, I want to pick up finally on another theme, and again in terms of, of going forward, because listening particularly earlier to the, to the, if you like, the more historical, you got this sense of a narrative with a majority church, and and a minority church, and this narrative had very much shaped this island. The challenge for both churches, particularly the smaller churches, in an increasingly uh, secular society, and there were various re references to the increasing secularism, but again, in terms of theology, are people voting with their feet and walking away from so, so, so the relevance of all of these things in the next 10, 20 years, and we'll conclude on that. Martin? Well, I would like to see, I, I would dispute the notion that the only form of republicanism is French republicanism, you know, the sort of strict, very strict separation of church and state. Whether we like it or not, uh, church culture, traditions and so on, I mean, it's part of Irish life in different ways, north and south. And uh, I would tend to want... Um, uh, uh, to work with that um, move, moving forward. There is a price to be paid for electoral, uh, sorry, for, um, uh, you know, liberal secular change, and I'm sure, you know, I Ivana uh, sort of bears the wounds uh, of it. Um, yes, um, progress in... in <laughs> Pro progress may be may be, may be, may be achieved or what or what is what is regarded as such 
but there is a substantial section of the population that is alienated. And I would attribute a bit of the relatively poor showing of the two main parties to being an objection by some of their previous followers to their role in supporting uh, some of the changes that Ivana is particularly closely associated with. And I'm not attacking the substance of those changes, um, but it, it, there is a price to pay. And I do think more attention, I've heard a lot of people say this, and people who are not particularly religious, more effort needs to be made to bring people with you. When people were making social changes, say on divorce and con I finished divorce, contraception, and so on, 70s, 80s, was very careful consultation with different different groups of different opinions. Okay. Well, <laughs> obviously this could run and run. Uh, I would respectfully, in a friendly fashion, disagree with Martin. I I do think that the best in the best tradition of republicanism uh, we do we do need to see a clear formal separation of church and state and a move towards a much more pluralist structuring and uh, I don't think I bear the wounds of that um, Andrew suggested they might be stigmata if I do but uh, <laughs> um, I don't uh, I, I don't think so I don't I don't agree with Martin's analysis on the recent election I think there were other reasons I don't think the position taken by those two parties because that was a position shared by Sinn Féin and indeed to be to give Mary Lou credit she really did uh, put, bring her party with her on a, on a journey towards more liberal approach on social issues so uh, I think uh, I think in fact the people are voting with their feet. I was very struck by Anne's presentation. You know, I think that's that reflects the reality that, yes, for a very long time, that the tiny number, the 5% of Protestant schools, did act as a sponge for uh, parents who wished to see greater diversity. What we're seeing now is parents increasingly move towards setting up their own schools. I know Daniel is doing research, Daniel Fass, on, on the new model of the community school, 23 or 24 now, and growing. So I think that we're seeing a huge new models, uh, a huge, huge new influential models of education which parents are seeking out because they no longer want their children educated or instructed in this very narrow religious uh, religious setting that was the traditional Catholic ethos schools. So I think we're seeing a change where we don't see, where, I don't, don't think people feel alienated. If anything, there's an inertia for many people who are just putting up with a system that's been there a long time. But I think we see a surge of change, a, really, a real surge of people seeking change. And I think that is, uh, that is what we mean when we talk about secularization. And it's it's not to the detriment of, religion, of people of religion. I think we can see that in the sort of model that the Taoiseach um, uh, brought about with the forum, the interfaith forum. I think we need to see a move towards an ethical state, but an ethical state built on ethics of humanism and on values of community. So, and Andrew, you were arguing about the importance of uh, the developing theological thinking, but again, in a world where it's increasingly something uh, not understood at all by a lot of people coming out of our education system. Well, yes and no. I mean, I think we've now got to the stage where we have a really, really good junior certificate program in religious studies and a really good leaving certificate program in religious studies, which are taken up and are, are very popular with students. They're a great syllabus and they, they answer to that kind of, you know, if you like, the, the ideal of, of curiosity and sympathy for your fellow global citizens who, who, who may be a little bit different. And, you know, it's interesting to find out just how different they are. I don't think that secularization is necessarily some sort of bogey, but I do think there is a change coming for the churches because simply arising from our history, we have been 
uh, trapped into this 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 world in which we have we have pulled we've tightened ranks together and had a very clearly us them. Once that becomes slightly lesser or or, or slightly less important to us, um, we we may find that there are more important issues. To, to become interested in and where religious identity may be. I mean, it's interesting that Natemere was so so discussed. Um, and, and, you know, you look back and you think, well, yes, this is a big bugbear for minority people, uh, the, the, this question of Natemere and the idea of, you know, the, the, the sanctified requirements of breeding rights for, for, for various people. Um, but Protestants objected to it because we wanted the breeding rights as well. It's, it's, it's extraordinarily wonderful for people who, who belong to mixed marriages, which nowadays means you know, people who are male and female, actually. Um, um, that, that to, have, to have this kind of, of concern, you know, people looked over prams and instead of asking, is it a boy or a girl, they looked to see if it had horns or not. So you know, we, we are moving into a different dispensation where religious identity will... We, we don't all have to belong to church, for the church to make a meaningful presence and make a meaningful contribution to society. But simply having the sheep dipping of the hordes is behind us. Okay, that's a really nice thought. Final word with you, Anne. Yeah, I just have this image of Andrew being sheep dipped, which is frightening me now. Um, Just in terms of, you know that great phrase, well, I wouldn't start from here when you're giving somebody directions. In many ways, you can look at our school system and say, well, I wouldn't start from here. But because of the nature of the Irish Constitution, it's actually very, very, very difficult to change the whole system as we have it. So what I suspect we will see is A, the increasing diversity that you were talking about, but not necessarily the moving away from the various different kinds of faith schools. There will certainly be reduced proportions of them overall, but I'm not sure we're going to move away from the structure we have. Well, I mean, I've suggested this to my students. You either go out and convince everybody to vote in your direction in a referendum, which we know is notoriously difficult, or you go for the French Revolution model, and I asked them which one they wanted to go for. Oddly enough, they weren't in the mood for revolution on that particular day. But it is very difficult to change our structures. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't try. And can I say a final thing about Church of Ireland schools? I think they're a lot less challenged by secularism and post-secularism than the Roman Catholic schools are because of the embedded nature of the way faith is supposed to underpin every aspect of Catholic schooling. It doesn't operate like that in Anglican schooling here in England or in Wales or elsewhere. It's a more fluid, open, flat, democratic kind of system. So I think it's uh, more flexible. Anya. Listen, that brings to an end a really fantastic contributions from an amazing panel and a really good afternoon. Would you give them all a round of applause? Thank you. And we have closing words now, Pauline, don't we? Ladies and gentlemen, uh, far be it from me, to um, hold you back from a reception which is awaiting us in the front room. But I suppose I just want to say a couple of things. Um, Ivana took up something I said, that disestablishment is a work in progress. Uh, I actually meant that because I think part of what uh, those of us who are involved in and delighted to be involved in the life of the Church of Ireland is actually that we're not uninvolved in the life of the society. 
And it's that coming together and it's that meeting of minds in a critical and uh, combative space that has been made possible in this ancient and magnificent Royal Irish Academy this afternoon, which has given us fresh hope. We began with three C's, one of which was concept, the other was consequences, and the other was challenges. I just want to take maybe three T's and then three more T's. Um, first word I think I would have to use is trauma. That's actually to recognize, as it were, the impact of change sequentially on a community which is becoming smaller. That's not actually to argue for self-pity, but is actually the recognition of proportionality. The second T I would use is that of transformation. Because I think without any form of self-congratulation, because self-pity and self-congratulation are siblings, without any form of self-congratulation, uh, we have seen uh, a capacity for transformation, not only within the Church of Ireland, but also through its contribution agency and also some of its magnificent and fascinating individuals. Third, I think, is a word which I'd like to use, tradition. Uh, we often think of tradition as being a dead weight or as dead wood. But I think tradition is about interpretation rather than simply about remembering or even worse, reminiscing. So those probably are three words that I would draw out from what I've heard. Trauma, transformation, and tradition. But let me just have three more. One is today and tomorrow, and the third is transition because I think part of what we have learnt very much from today is that need to keep transitioning and to keep engaging. So I'd like to thank everybody who has taken part. The chairs of the panels, the participants in those panels, those who have given slightly more formal lectures, uh, once again the president of this academy, and I'd like to thank Andrew, who was uh, very much in charge of the putting together of the group that made this possible, that is Andrew Power. But I want to thank two other people as well. That is Pauline from within this academy and Quiva from within Church House. Because it's very much been Quiva's vision that we would actually enable uh, the Church of Ireland of today to engage in the society of today. I think it was Andrew who probably mentioned uh, a volume from uh, 50 years ago. Um, I'm not quite sure, nor would I dare ask, what he makes of the volume that we produced last year, but I would nonetheless like to offer a copy of it to the president as a reflection on ourselves. Not our attempt simply to be a community, not a church, but actually a reflection on who we are and what has happened and how we try to respond to um, societal changes and fresh norms uh, in the last 50 years. I hope there is a space somewhere in your filing system here and somewhere on a shelf uh, for this. But thank you so much for having us and I look forward to being here. Thank you.